0: with this. Uh, we'll do a Q&A now. So please, if any of you want to share, have questions, uh, please use the raise hand function and we'll go one at a time. We'll do Q&A. Now, um, when you ask your questions, I invite you to really look to where there are gaps in your understanding and more importantly, where there's a block in you actualizing and living the truths that we're talking about together. So let's focus on embodiment. And Theresa, those of you who are, uh, and Amanda, you know, in the comments, I see some some questions that were going on throughout the lecture uh, because I couldn't quite fit them into the flow of the lecture. I, I Forgive me, I apologize, I missed them. But maybe you can bring them up again now. So let's hash it out. Let's deal with it. Let's sort out all the doubts and difficulties and let's walk out of here free people, right? Or rather just recognize that we've always already been free. So let's take Dahlia and then let's take Justin. So yes, Dahlia, go for it. Okay, so my question is, uh,
1: what is being... how am i a human being if i'm the witness and what's the difference what is being a human being other than a body and a mind
0: Mm. theresa did you hear that are you here theresa because i feel like so much of what theresa asked will be hashed out in a little bit okay good theresa okay okay. so follow this This it's a really really good question what is it to be human right dahlia like Isn't being human to have a body and have a mind and have a desire for certain enjoyments and to have um, expectations for the future and like a past. And I mean, I would say a human being is a person, right? Say what it is to be human is to be a person. Would you agree, Dahlia? Yeah. Right. Let's, we can use the terms interchangeably. A human being is a person and there are persons all around us. So what is it to be a human being? It seems like, and and, uh, Dahlia, you're right. And both you, Teresa and Dalia are both pointing out that it seems like what we're saying is you're not a human being. It seems like we're invalidating your personhood in Advaita Vedanta. That's exactly what we're doing. No doubt about it. Both Advaita Vedanta and Buddhism are fundamentally an attempt to invalidate your humanness and your personhood. Fundamentally. I'm sorry, but there's no better way to say it. The Buddhists say it best, Anatman. You know what you are? Anatman. You know what that means An no Atman means self. You are no self. You're not a person. If you think you're a person, you're going to suffer in the world. Basically, what the Buddha is saying is that the most unnatural way to be in this world is as a person is as a quote unquote human being. Because, you know, from the point of view of the Buddha, do you know what a human being is? It's an artificial isolation of apart from the rest of the whole. What would otherwise be a seamless part of the whole has now decided that it's other from the whole. heavy stuff you know what your personhood is it's a denial of your transpersonal essence nature your personalhood personhood your human beingness is according to Advaita Vedanta your fundamental error oh I am me sorry that's why you suffer I am a person with a particular history and a particular future you got another one coming You see, because what I've done is I've created a distance between me and every other person and not only that, every other being and not only that, every other like thing, the rock, the the chair, all of that is an other because I've articulated a self. If I articulate a self, I thereby negate the not self. Do you understand? If there's a self, there must be a not self. It seems like it. So the Buddha says, okay, you get old, you get sick and you die. But what gets old? What gets sick? What dies? The body. You know, what suffers? The mind. The mind suffers because it's looking for permanence in the only place it cannot find it, in the body, in the world, in the mind. So what's the solution? The Buddha's sitting under a tree and you know his solution is, this is his, his insight. Um, oh, shanikam, shanikam, sarvam shanikam. Momentary, momentary. Everything is momentary. Everything. All pleasures, all sorrows, they're momentary. <gasps> Anityam, anithyam, sarvam, anithyam. It transient, transient, all things are transient. And then the startling insight. Shunyam, shunyam, sarvam, void, void, it's nothing. And there are two ways to understand this. One is dukkam, dukkam, sarvam dukkam. Because it's void, I want it to be something. I I demand that it's something. I hold on to these structures. I reify this, I reify that, I'm suffering, right? Dukkha, everything is dukkha. Why? Because I'm looking for something in a world of nothing. It's all changing and I'm trying to grasp at the sand as if it was coins or whatever. Okay. Then he says, interestingly enough, so what's the way out? And the the inside of the Buddha is anatman, anatman, sarvamanatman. anatman. Not only is everything changing, so too is this body changing. It's a stream of change. The mind is a flux. (gasps) There's no ground. There's no place for me to stand. This is the thrilling experience of Buddhism. I'm free because I'm not a person. There's no such thing as a self, a reified thing that can suffer and die. No, no, no. I am the moment. I am a receptacle of change. In fact, uh, because I'm a not-self, therein lies my ability to love all. So when the Buddha realized that he wasn't a person, that caused 40 years of the most charitable behavior that any human being has ever seen. He walked around India tirelessly setting up ashrams, teaching this stuff. The, The world's first veterinarian institutes came up during this time, by the way. Thanks to the Buddha, we recognize that animals like elephants and cows are beings. And that they should be treated if there's a cow with mad cow disease. They, didn't, they don't really have pets back then, okay? And still today, my parents wouldn't dream. When I was a kid, I wanted a dog. And I watched American TV. So I wanted that dog to be an inside dog. But that idea to Indians is like abhorrent. What do you mean a dog is inside the house? Dogs are outside. And their name is dog, okay? They're not like Jimmy. Or, if you give them a name, you give them the name of like an Englishman. Right, because of colonization, like, that's Jack or that's Jimmy. But very rarely do you like treat a dog like a part of the family. You love it, but and I was like, okay, I'm gonna have a dog, and i like one of those American kids on TV. My dog's gonna be an inside dog, so I brought the dog inside. And then when I woke up in the morning, he had like shat all over the place. The room was like wrecked, and my parents come in like, what? I didn't realize. I didn't realize body training was a thing. I don't (laughs) understand about body training. (laughs) And the dog just shat everywhere. So from that point on, he was an outside dog. But we did build him a kennel that looks exactly like my house. So our house has like a certain brick. The kennel had that brick. My house, the walls were a certain color. His kennel was that color. Just so I would like be happier. So anyway, (laughs) that's what happens. But wait, this is India. Like at that time. When people didn't care about like animals in the way that we do now. And then even then veterinary institutes came up for like cows that you didn't even own for elephants that weren't even yours. They were just beings in need of help. So wait, this is remarkable. The Buddha denies his personhood, renounces his humanness, claims that he is not a person and suddenly experiences a tremendous love for all humans and animals and pioneers the world's first veterinary institutes and humanitarian relief programs who champions above all the principle of non-violence and non-injury, makes it a core tenant of Buddhism. So wait, what's going on here? It seems like you can't, and, and you know, Orion has a beautiful discussion about the bodhicitta in the QA, You can't both renounce the self um, and hold on to any selfishness. If you renounce the self, automatically Mahakaruna comes, great compassion. Not just the selfish compassion as, a, oh, I'm a human and that's another human suffering. I as a human, I'm gonna go help that human. Yay me, I'm so good. Not like that. Not like this, like stupid selfish kind of compassion. But the real compassion of the Buddha, the Bodhisattva, the Mahakaruna compassion, is the never mind cold, never mind hunger, never mind um, thirst, never mind money. It will fall from the heavens. Let me die in harness you know, let me be born a thousand times. Let me endure a hundred hells, if only to serve the one God whom I believe in, the sum total of all souls, my God, the lowly, my God, the sick, my God, the poor, my God, the ignorant, my God, the wicked. Swami Vivekananda, right? I'm paraphrasing, but that's his bhava. He's the exemplar of the Bodhisattva. He literally killed himself, straining to work for others. He did nothing he did for his own sake. He did it for everyone else, just like the Buddha. He literally killed himself to help others. Jesus, I mean, come on. So if you look at these beings, you'll see by the Buddha renounces the self. You are not a human being. You're not a person. And not only that, he will logically logic you into that conclusion. Right? And what do Advaitins do? The exact same thing. They logic you into saying, I am not I. Shankara says, I am not the mind. I'm not the intellect. I'm not the memory. And wait a minute. This is bizarre. I am not the Ahankara. I'm not I. Yeah. You're not I, you are not you. That's the statement of um, Advaita. So if Teresa, you're asking, why did we come here to be human beings? And if Dalia is asking, what is it to be a human being? Buddhism and Advaita Vedanta would say, beats the fuck out of me. That's a concept. That's an error. You're never a human being. You never were, you never will be. You are just the whole, okay? You're this transpersonal self. Now go and start a veterinary institute and get over yourself. That's really what Advaita and Buddhism would say. Get over it, you know? Stop thinking you're special. You're not. Um, but therein, therein lies your specialness, your ordinariness, your perfect non-selfness, okay? So that's Buddhism, that's um, Advaita Vedanta. But wait, don't dualistic traditions do the same thing? Look at Christianity. Not my will be done, but thy will be done. I can of my own self do nothing. Everything that I do, my father who art in heaven does through me. Oh Lord, I am nothing. I am a worm. I'm dust at your feet. I'm I'm a sinner. I, I can't, you see, the same thing. They're doing the same thing, but in a more emotional way. They're doing it through the heart. They're saying, I'm nothing. I'm nothing, Lord. I have to tell you another funny story. A great Christian mystic is praying. I'm nothing. I'm nothing. I'm humbler than a worm. I'm dust at your feet. Then the second Christian mystic comes and says, Lord, I'm nothing. I'm dust. I am absolutely at thy mercy. I am nothing. Then the sweeper in the church he gets inspired. He puts down his broom. He kneels and he says, Lord, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. So then the first two, they look at each other and they look at him and say, who does he think he is? <laughs> or there's another meme where um, a Hindu kind of Vedic philosopher is a point to the Buddha who's sitting on him and he's like, just because you achieved enlightenment just, doesn't mean you can be all emptier than thou. <laughs> right. So anyway, look, all religion does this. Uh, Whether it's dualistic Christianity, Islam, the word Islam literally means to surrender. To surrender what? To surrender yourself to God. Like Islam, Christianity, um, Buddhism, Advaita, Vedanta, all religion, I would dare say, any genuine religion is um, an invalidation of your personhood. It's a surrender of this idea of separate self, the surrender of the idea of humanness, which, you know, I'm going to argue just means animalness. I have desires. Now I have to fulfill them. Wow. Wow. Well done. How wonderful. How easy to do that. Just go fulfill your desires, right? And call yourself a human being while you do it. Why do you go to university? I don't know. You want to improve your survival and reproduction value. Yeah. You want to learn my ass. You want to learn you're there because you want to meet girls and boys and people and like get a good job and make some money. How are you different from like a chipmunk collecting acorns for the winter? And you call that being a human being. So anyway, that would be the attitude that we take as a Buddhist, as an Advaitin. We say, no, there's something higher than being a human. That's being a Bodhisattva. That's being empty of all such concepts. Okay. Anyway, that's, yeah, sorry.
1: You play as the person.
0: Yes. Okay. Dahlia, you're getting to the next thing, which I want to address Teresa and, and, and especially Teresa with this. There's another view and that's the Kashmiri Shaiva view, which is, yeah, human is a game. It's not what I am. Any more than I am the character in Grand Theft Auto Five, Okay. But it's still fun to like play that character. You know, so an Advaitin would say it's not a video game, it's a movie. It's happening by itself. Prakritayeva cha karmani kriyanani sarva The nature is naturing. The body, mind, they're just doing their own thing. I am watching the movie. So I have two choices. Jamie Lee Curtis is running from a serial killer. If I am Jamie Lee Curtis, it's not a movie, it's a nightmare. But if I'm watching a movie, then it's fun. It's a wonderful horror movie. Okay. I'm enjoying it. So Advaita says it's a movie. I'm the witness, the Sakshi of that movie. If I recognize that, whether it's a horror movie or not, it's still fun. Right? The Kashmiri Shaivai, they might say it's a video game. It's not a movie. It's a video game. You can actually do stuff in it. You're not just watching. You're like controlling the character to some degree. And you'll want to do stuff. You'll want to play. Um, And as Teresa said, yes, it's not investing identity, yet still having fun, like saying, oh, um, and Amal and I had this conversation in uh, um, the Thursday, Tantra Thursday's class, we talked about how like, no, it's you don't have to invalidate the self entirely, you just have to understand that you are not that particular person, and then you can really play the, the character then Shiva can have his way with that person. Like, oh, well, what is that person? Maybe they want to start an organization. Maybe they want to go out and do this or do that. Let them. And that's your way or Shakti. The, the Amal is the Shakti of that Shiva. Like Nish is the Shakti of this Shiva. So I think, Dalia, what you're saying now as play, that would be an idea very at home with Tantra, with Kashmiri Shaivism. Whereas with the more classical forms of Buddhism, Advaita, Vedanta, Christianity, and Islam, the person is, I guess you could say at best, an offering to God, in surrender, or at worst, um, completely not even there, an illusion, and error.
1: Okay, there's a will there, though. So, mm-hmm. I'm not the doer. How is there, like, yeah, like, how is there an attention? How do, how is it that I move? Because you say, yes. like, you move, I do this, you have to do that, or whatever. Like, there are tasks to me. Yes. But I am not me. So
0: how does that work? You've identified the biggest distinction between Kashmiri Shaivism and Advaita Vedanta. And the distinction is like exactly as you said, will. You see, um, in Advaita Vedanta, the Brahman that we're talking about, which is what you are, it's just a witness. You're right. It's not the doer. It's never the doer. It's not the doer. It's not the enjoyer. It's the body that does. And you're not the body. It's the mind that makes decisions and thinks and moves attention. It's the mind that does, but you, because you're not the body and mind, you don't do anything. Right? So that's why I use the movie analogy. You're not like in real time, writing the script, directing the movie, um, running the character this way and that, like a video game. You can't, you're just watching the movie. In fact, that's what Buddhism, Advaita Vedanta and Sankhya, they're in favor of that view. It's a no self in Buddhism and it's the Atman in Vedanta um, and it's the Purusha in Sankhya. In all cases, there's no doing because the world is not seen as real anyway and there's no person to act in that world anyway. So um, literally Krishna says, ignorance is thinking you are the doer. He sees who sees that nature alone does everything and you remain ever the witness, never the body and mind. So you're right. Insofar as we're talking Advaita Vedanta, you can't do anything. Now, in that second view that we talked about, and this is a very, I'm excited, very nuanced philosophy. Thank you, Dalia. In that second view that we're talking about, Kashmiri Shaivism, the worldview is a bit different. Now, awareness, this Brahman, is called Shiva and he has a will. That's unique. In fact, it's called Icha Shakti, the power of willing. In fact, he he has a desire. <sighs> God has a desire, that's icky. I mean, it's icky to the Advaitins because that would imply non-independence. If God has a desire, then that means God is somehow insufficient. And not only that, it means that there's something outside of God that God thinks will fulfill it, right? Like the idea of God and desire, Brahman and desire is very iffy, makes no sense. Brahman is a witness, not a person, so I can't desire anything. In Kashmiri Shaivism though, we make a distinction between this type of desire the desire to add something onto myself versus this kind of desire, the desire to express something. So in Kashmir Shaivism, the idea is awareness is full of the desire to create a world driven by its own innate creative urge. So wait, if you follow closely, you'll see essentially what Kashmiri Shaivism is trying to do is it's trying to bridge Nirguna Brahman, the Nirguna formless attribute of Brahman of the Advaitin with the Saguna Brahman of the devotional dualistic Vaishnava. See, in the dualistic religions, God is a person with a desire and a will. He, she, it creates the world and peoples it with beings because she wants to. She loves doing it. And in the Vedantic world, there is no world. If you say, why did God create the world? They'll laugh at you and say, what world? So you've got this formless awareness that doesn't do anything, just watches. And then you've got this personal Saguna Brahman that like, is inscrutably responsible for both the Holocaust and yet is somehow still, you know, omnibenevolent. There's like a lot of problems in that dualistic religion kind of idea. Kashmiri Shaivism is like, why not both? And they're doing it. They're saying, uh, God is that formless awareness. But innate in that formless awareness is this thing called Icha Shakti, this desire. So she uses herself as a canvas. Svechaya Vishva Mun Milayati. She uses herself, Swa. Bittau, bitti means herself as a canvas, swa icha, driven by her own will, her urge, she creates this world. Then, after she creates this world, she enters into it as a dahlia. Right? So now there exists a dahlia. Okay, what is a dahlia? It's a particular node through which mother can experience herself in the world. So now we're back to this idea of self-surrender. So what you should do now as a person is to surrender your personal will. Insofar as I have a personal will, it contradicts God's will. But we even say that's not true. Your personal will is still Shakti's will. They're really radical here. It's nothing other than Shakti, right? So it, your will is entirely Shakti's will. But I mean, speaking from the point of view of you as a person, I know, Kate, I, I think many of you here, when we start talking Kashmiri Shaivism, you'll love it. And I myself am like secretly I'm not so secretly, many of you know this, but I myself am a loyalist to Kashmir Shaivism. Uh, though I almost exclusively teach Advaita Vedanta, my real like Kashmir Shaivism is like my, you know, it's my, it's what I was born into. It's what I love teaching the most, the du- non-duality of Shiva, but it's dangerous to teach. I once asked Swami Savarapyananda about it. You know, we were on a walk and I said, Swamiji, Sri Ramakrishna is a Shakta. He's a tantric Shakta Advaitin. You know, he's a non dualist, but in our sense of the word, you know, according to Sramakrishna, the world is real. It's not an illusion. It's real, uh, but as an expression of Shakti. And uh, it's only in this Shaivism that you get this idea, Tad Bhumika Sarva darshana All schools of philosophy are various expressions of this one Shakti, etc. And Kate, come to Thursdays. Thursday nights is our kind of tantric Shaivism class. But anyway, you know, um, and I asked him, I said, isn't this more. Align with Sri Ramakrishna's message, why are we as an order more Vedantic? And Swami Sariparanda said, no, it's true, but um, I can't present Kashmiri Shaivism to the board of um, directors of philosophy at Harvard. <laughs> it's it, it, There's too many paradoxes. The philosophy is too unwieldy. And it's it's more a catalog of experience than it is a philosophy. It's very difficult um, for beginners to understand and very dangerous for them to adopt because it just leads to permissiveness and fatalism. And just like, it can it can be a license for worldliness, which is okay. It just, it, it wouldn't help them. So more helpful than that is Advaita Vedanta, you know? And then um, Kashmir Shaivism, he said later on the walk, he said, it's very helpful for high-level practitioners. You know, so it is, it's very helpful for those who have had a lot. Of, and, and my rebuttal is, Icha Shakti must be a part of awareness, because why then would the Buddha desire to express all of this? Why would Shankara be moved to write poem after poem, book after book? Clearly, creative urge is part of awareness. Otherwise, why would enlightened masters be so fragrant like flowers blooming? So notice, we use this phrase in that line, unmilayati, which can imply blooming. So mother, she's full of this creative urge. My mother, Kali, your mother, Kali, she's full of this creative urge and she doesn't create the world with something else like a pile of bricks. No, she uses her very own body to create all the shit and then comes into it as people, as plants, as beings um, and enjoys. She plays a crazy game she plays, right? Um, And the beautiful thing is the word is unmilayati. This is the blooming fragrance of mother. Everything you see around you is her blooming into expression. You are part of that expression. And as a result, you are here to play a particular game and it's your will. It's not different from mother's will. So if you came to the lecture, it's because mother delights in learning spirituality. So you're here to delight her. She's playing through you, you know? And then one day you'll want to meditate and mother will want to meditate. And then while you're meditating, you'll have some kind of, I don't know, lustful urge. That's mother really. It's her that's there giving you that and you'll go into the world and fulfill it. That's why if you look at the Chandi, some secrets there when he goes for instance this one ya oh mother you who abide in all beings in the form of hunger salutation to you salutation to you salutation to you again and again ya trishna rupeena samsita namastasye namastase namo namaha mother, you who abide in all beings in the form of thirst salutation to you, salutation to you, salutation to you again and again and then my favorite ya Devi bhuteshu branti rupeena samsita mother, you who abide in all beings in the form of error namastasye 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 namo namaha you see, if you don't know that you are Shiva it's because Shiva is hiding himself from Shiva for what? for fun when will you know that you're Shiva? When Shiva is bored of that game and reveals himself to you as none other than you. Then you're like, oh, I'm Shiva. Okay, play, play time. You see, what it means to be a master in Shaivism is to be wild and eccentric. So wild and eccentric that you might even keep a 9 to 5 job as an accountant because you're Shiva. That's how radical we are. We're so radical that you won't even know that we're sh- like, like, you know. <laughs> or, or... I'm I'm, I'm bold enough to say this, or you will start a genocide because we have to defend that also, right? Right. If, if Shiva's will is all this like good stuff, then it's equally his will that tragic shit happens in the world. So in closing this, once this really disturbed someone, they came to Sri Ramakrishna and they asked him, why is there so much suffering in the world? And Sri Ramakrishna said, it's all, uh, who can understand mother? That's what he said. First his first response. Level one is who can understand mother? right? So notice the Shaiva doesn't make a pretense of omnibenevolence. That would confine God to our own conception of morality. No, who the fuck knows what's in our mind? Look at her. Ugh, she's crazy. What? She, so who can understand mother, right? Then he's not satisfied with that. He's an intellectual. He demands an answer. So then Sri Ramakrishna goes one step further. Second answer, it's all her sweet will. And this angers him even more. So she wants this to happen. It's her will. It's her will that all this horrible shit is going on. And Sri Ramakrishna goes, okay, okay, wait. That, that makes you unhappy. Okay, third response. It's all her play. Notice how it's changing, right? Who can understand her? It changes to it's her will. Then he goes further. This is not a step that Abrahamic traditions generally take. For them, they stop at will, right? It's kind of, th- those traditions are very serious. God has a beard, it's very serious. I'm, I'm being flippant, I'm just kidding. The mystics of those traditions, like the Sufis and, you know, they know God is playful. But anyway, in India, the general belief is this is Leela. It's the Leela of, I don't know, Vishnu or Shiva or whatever. It's play, it's all God's play. You know, the devotee got even more pissed. He was, if you thought he was pissed with the will answer, he was more pissed with the play answer because then he said, what? It's, it's play for her, it's hell for me. I mean, it, it might, it is worse. It might all be fun and games for mother. For me, it means samsara. Me, me, it means suffering. What kind of a mother is that? And then Sri Ramakrishna's fourth answer is stunning. He says, but who are you? Right, do you understand? But who are you? You are that mother. You are the one that's playing. If you're suffering, hey, you caused it. I'm sorry to victim blame. You caused it. You are Kali, right? Um, everything is your fault. The Genocides, all your fault. You did it. You're Kali. Why'd you do that? I don't know what got into your head, right? But you know how we resolve it? They didn't. This is even more flippant. And I'm so sorry to say this, but really, this is the tradition. It goes even crazier. It's and this, you see why I don't teach this? How politically incorrect it would be in some places right? But it's awesome. It's awesome for high-level practitioners. I am drunk on Kashmir Shaivism, right? Every day, I I will sing you a song after this just to kind of capture the the attitude. Um, It's so intoxicating. Look at mother, so blissful. How can you be anything but drunk and mad when you meditate on her? Kamala Kanta says, mother, I've been trying to understand you my whole life. And look what happened. (laughs) I'm mad. I've become mad. Mother, I've gone mad trying to think about you. That's Kamala Kanta. He's saying that. The six darshanas of Hinduism are powerless to reveal you, mother. Powerless. You are beyond the ken of mortal philosophy. Advaita Vedanta, you leave it in the dust. It has no idea about your grandeur. So yes, you become drunk, you become mad. You should be very careful about shaktas. Anyway, so then if you if you understand it's you, then you could say, wait, you know how we solve this political incorrectness? This is the most politically incorrect thing I'm going to say. You know why it's okay that there are genocides? Dare I say it? You know why that was okay? Because it's just season two, Red Wedding, Game of Thrones. What? Okay, well, do you see Game of Thrones? I don't know if it was season three or season two, but you remember that happened, that Red Wedding? was like really horrific. There was like a pregnant woman, you know? I mean, oh my God, it's so awful. There's like stabbing and killing and like throats are getting cut. You remember that, right? You know what I'm talking about? Or like, think of some other horrible tragedy. So what the fuck? Why were we okay? We're sitting sitting there watching this shit and enjoying it. But wait, if it was actually happening, we wouldn't be. Okay, that's the difference. If you were actually watching real-time footage of that, you would probably turn off the screen, become super disturbed. But no, you were entertained. You know why you're entertained? Because you know that's not really happening. No matter how well the method actors are acting, it's still an act. It's still a play. All that blood, special effects. That's what Kashmir Shah is. You know the genocides? Red Wedding, it's special effects. You think it's all so real. Don't worry. Don't worry. When you die, you'll see that it was all a game. Rumi says it beautifully. He says, to the sleeper, the dream is real. But one day, death comes like a swift dawn, and you will wake up laughing at what you once thought was your grief. So all this horrible serious shit in the world when you when you finish you'll realize oh my god it was all just play acting it was all just a stage and more importantly you directed it you acted in it you're the uh, stage upon which it was played and it was all for your own benefit so you're the director actor stage and audience <laughs>
1: You would have to make really big um, contractions in order to, like, have that kind of, like, sensation. Like, you would have to have, like, the Holocaust in order to, like, feel something like that.
2: Oh, my God. You would have
1: to, like, make something really, really scary in order to be scared if you are pure awareness or really the infinite. <laughs>
0: Oh my God, I can't with you, Dalia. Even the terms you use describe such a strong influence of that past life in which you were clearly a tantrika because we speak almost entirely in terms of contraction and expansion. So wait, if mother is one thing, How is any one thing different from another? It's easy in Advaita, you say it doesn't exist. There's only Brahman and there's no diversity. The diversity is a seeming diversity, but in in Kashmir Shaivism, we have a much harder task. We have to prove that diversity is real, but so too is non-duality. What what are we going to do? So Vivekananda actually does this a lot. How is hate different from love or love different from fear? Actually, fear is a type of love. Fear is a contraction of love. Love is an expansion of fear. So things are different, not because they're different in type or kind, but because they're different in degree. So what is Nish? Nish is Shiva contracted. What is Shiva? Nish expanded. So are Nish and Shiva different? No, 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 no. Nish and Shiva are the same thing, just different degrees of one vibration, just octaves, right? They're just like, Shiva is the eighth. I am just, can someone sing that? The C go up from C, I mean, whatever note, go up to the eighth. Can anybody do that? Can anybody walk up the scale for us? Sarigama Paganya, anybody? Do, re, mi, fa, you know, all the way to, do. No. Okay, go for it, go for it.
3: Do, re, mi,
4: fa, la, ti, do, ti, la, so, fa, mi, re, do.
0: Yeah, so I wish we could sing together because someone should hold an eighth and someone should hold the one. And you'll realize that the eighth and the one are the same note on different frequencies. So why are there seven notes, seven chakras, duh? I go from the root chakra all the way up and Shiva is just the, the eighth, the... Uh, out through the Prama Randra. Okay, we can talk Kashmir Shaivism all night. But um, that's the answer, Dahlia and, and Theresa. Like if you're wondering, okay, what is a human being? A human being is a contraction of God. What is God? An expansion of any animal, human being, plant, tree. That's it. They're just different degrees of the same thing. Why is there a human being? Because mother is playful like that. She'd be like that sometimes. she want to be a human being. So she contracts, becomes a human being, plays her game, plays her game, plays her game, and then prays to herself and then is free. It's so funny. It's like she's just praying to herself. And you know what? Her favorite game is devotion. Nothing is sweeter in this world than devotion to the mother because it's the most authentic you can be. It's when you're connecting to who you really are. That's why tantrika worships dualistically yet with an underlying non-duality. They know that the worshipped and the worshipper are not different, but for the sake of the game, they purposefully distinguish each other and play. (laughs) Yeah. So can I sing you a song? Okay. Okay, this is, um, this is the Devi, Devi Stotra by Abhinavagupta, Gupta. And it's a lot like Shankara's Saundarya Lahari. So it expresses these sentiments in song. It goes like this. Tava chaka Stuti rambike Sakala shabha dhamayi Kila te tanu Nikila mootishu bhavadan nayo manasija subahish prasara sucha iti Chagati jatamayat na vasadidam. Stuti japar chana chana Oh mother. Here is the futility of my worship. How can I praise you when you have become the very words that I use to praise you? All words and sounds arise from the 50 letters that pervade your entire body, for you are Paravak, the primordial sound. And so, whether I am praying in the temple or whether I am engaged in worldly talk, in truth, All of it has been nothing but hymns praising you. Whether I have known it or not, my whole life has been an unceasing worship of you. All my gestures have been like so many mudras to you. All my words have been like so many hymns to you. In everything that I perceive in the world and in every thought that I can think in the mind, it has all afforded me an opportunity to perceive you and embrace you. So, Mother... As the consort of the Supreme Bhairava, thou art ever intent on removing my every affliction without any effort on my part whatsoever, hence the futility of my worship. Right? So that's, that's that song.
1: <laughs> Thank you for sharing.
0: That's yeah, a wonderful philosophy. You'll see it in Sri Ramakrishna a lot. But, you know. Advaita, don't think of it as different. Advaita, Vedanta, and Kashmir Shaivism—if you're really practicing, it's the same. If you look at how the masters like Ashtavakar live, it's very Shaiva, right? Like it's it's the same, really. But with the reason we don't teach this is because it's more about experience than theory. Whereas the theory portion is Advaita. You need Advaita, like that's the most important uh, uh, groundwork. If you don't have Advaita, you can't have Kashmir Shaivism. You must start with Advaita Vedanta. You must master that first. That's why you can't skip to Shaivism. Master Advaita Vedanta, then, then you can play with them. Then it's real. Otherwise, it's just a concept, right? So that's why I don't teach it because it's actually more as, as Swami Saripiranda, Staneshwar Timalsina, Professor G. He was, he was one of my acharyas. And he was saying, it's a, Swami Saripiranda asked him this. And he was really, so he, Swami Saripiranda told me that he asked Professor Staneshwar this. Um, am I right to say, he said, that uh, Kashmir Shaivism is like a catalog of experience, not necessarily a philosophical system. And Staneshwar Timulsana, Professor G said, yes, I couldn't have put it better. Kashmir Shaivism is just an explanation of how it feels to be enlightened. That's it, right? It, it's not a philosophy, but Advaita Vedanta is, okay? And I would say, Kali, what is she? She's void, she's the void of Buddhism. She's like, she's the black one, Shyama, Mother Shyama. She's, she's black void because in it is infinite potential. In in no thing is everything and everything that was, everything that could be. You cannot understand the pregnant potential of the gaping maw that is mother. You know, if you understand her in her form, you realize she's formless, void. And and so when you look at mother and you understand her in her void state, her colorless state, you realize, oh my god, I'm just a prasangika, madhyamika, shantong Buddhist. Right. Like if you really go deep into and you're like, oh my God, I'm just a Prasangika Madhyamika. I'm just a Buddhist. And if you go like deep into Buddhism, you're like, oh my God, I'm just a Shaiva. I'm just a Kashmiri Shaiva. You know, like that's in terms of experience. That's why I don't really teach it except on Thursdays, Thursdays. We have a we play. Right. So Dalia, Teresa, happy.
1: Where can I learn more about, um, Kashmir Shaivism.
0: That's what I was worried about. <laughs> 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 that was my concern.
1: <laughs> Why?
0: Um, okay. Let me just explain this. You can get into a lot of trouble. Okay. Like, okay. This is my disclaimer. My God, this whole week, I've been nothing but doomsdaying you. When you guys came to the, when you people came to the Ashtavakra class, what did I do? I doomsdayed you. I was like, be careful. If you study the Ashtavakra, you're going to, and now I'm like, be careful. I'm sorry to do this to you, but Kashmir Shaivism is really dangerous. Um, without a guru, you have to really be supervised because it's a practice-oriented tradition, meaning if you start studying it, you're going to be confronted with a whole bunch of like rituals and shit, right? And you know what's gonna happen? You're gonna wanna try them. That's the problem. You're gonna wanna do the practices. Like you might get, I don't know, you might get <laughs> Um, The Vignana Bhairava Tantra, for instance, which is like the main practice. That's what we're teaching on Thursday. You might get that. You'd be like, wow, 112 techniques. I'm going to try them. And then if you try them, best case scenario, nothing happens. Good. You're safe. It didn't work. Good. But worst case scenario, I don't know, some uncontrolled reactions might happen. These Practices are very powerful, you know, and not only that, if you start studying Kashmir Shaivism, you might start to study the left hand path stuff. And a lot of that is like mantras to ghouls and goblins. Like there's a lot of worship of dark things like ghouls, goblins. Why? Because we had a period in our history where people became just sorcerers. They became power-hungry sorcerers. I mean, that's bound to happen in a tradition that was very permissive for worldliness. So when we said, oh, bhoga and yoga are both okay, slowly bhoga overtook yoga, as it tends to do, right? If you say, okay, I'm going to party and I'm going to meditate. I Look, if you say you're going to party tonight and you're going to meditate tomorrow, my prediction is that you're not going to make the mat tomorrow at 6 a.m. I'm just saying. it's You're more likely to stay out, like... Raving than you are to because it's just more immediate, right? It's more immediate. So that's what happened. People started becoming more interested in these mantras that would give them power over like other people or give them power over money. So they started becoming sorcerers, right? So they start doing that stuff. Um, and so some of these mantras are to like ghouls and like scary things, um, dangerous things. Remember, we bhairavi, like look at Bhairavi, look at Bhairava. Are you sure you want to be like playing around with that without knowing what you are doing once. And by the way, we do Kali Puja here. I don't recommend it typically, except for some of you who have that Sangskara. And even then I'm telling you, right? Go to the Kali Mandir. Please go and see Swami Bhajananda. Get your Kali Mantras. If you really want to worship Kali, you should. She chooses you. You don't choose her. But please don't fuck around with this shit, okay? Because not to be a doomsday guy, it's just like there's some things that cannot be controlled in the worship of these energies. They're very wild and very powerful energies, and they can easily overwhelm the practitioner who's not properly grounded in renunciation, who's not properly grounded in meditation and who doesn't have supervision along the way. So once, um, if you want to worship Kali, that's good. You should, but here's the thing. Try to find a Kali mantra. Talk to me about it. I'll tell you how you can get a Kali mantra. Try to learn Puja correctly. You know, don't just learn it out of books, go to a monk like Swami Mahayogananda, maybe will teach you or something, go to Swami um, Bhajananda Saraswati in Kali Mandir, go and learn, learn puja properly. Then thirdly, okay, let's say short of that, let's say you've already been worshiping Kali, I don't mean to scare you keep doing it, but don't ignore her. So every day make sure you at least at the very least wave incense in front of her. And at the very least, like bow down to her. If you want to keep Kali in your house, make sure you do puja to her literally every day, okay? In some way, shape or form. We had a preceptor, Swami Prabhavanandaji, who was the presiding minister at the Vedanta Society of Southern California, real spiritual heavyweight. You know, he actually said, don't keep images of Kali in your house, like the fierce forms, right? Be careful with that. Don't keep them in your house um, because you don't know what can happen. And so he, he often like advised people against having those forms in their house. And if they persisted and wanted to have those forms, he would say, um, make sure you worship it. Nataraja is another one of those. So Nataraja and Kali. This is a type of Tantric Shaivism. It's very powerful, very easy to like lose control of. Right? And I I hate how sexy this stuff is. Like already when we talk about this stuff, everyone's like, ooh, tell me more. So ghouls and goblins and new moon night in the cremation ground. Okay, um, I'm supposed to feed the jackals, all right. And, and when Bhaira, um, Rasmani, Rani Rasmani died, jackals were howling in the night. It's eerie stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? We started talking about the fairies. It can be eerie, but I will tell you this. If you worship mother, um, there is no more powerful protector, right? There's, there's no more powerful force to have on your side. You know, there's like, there's no, no one defends you like mother. You're like a mother, like mother bear and her cub. That we, beware of kali worshippers. Don't piss them off, Uh, because where, yeah. Where Sorry, do I on. start
1: though? Like, what what is the first baby step? What is the um, first baby step?
0: Talk to me privately. Okay. Okay. <laughs> all <laughs> yeah. right.
1: Well, let me know when you when you can talk.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's what I was worried about. <laughs> so anyway, don't or be warned. Right? Like, there's a lot of stuff, and we typically say, like, read all you want, study all you want. That's good. We always encourage like learn all you want. In fact, maybe this is a good start. I would start with these are two books, okay, that I think would help orient you in Kashmir Shaivism. Kate's like, no, you like you like this book. These books are great. Um, let me give you a few. The first one is Tantra Illuminated by Christopher Wallace. So he is he goes by Harish. He yeah there. Her um, I'm gonna I'm gonna put it up here. So Luz is holding it. Tantra Illuminated by um, Christopher Wallace. That's a nice one. I love this book. It's beautiful. And it's very true to form. Um, I, I, I don't like we've Christopher Wallace and I have only spoken very briefly on the internet. Like I've not like really hung out with him. I know his brother and his brother and I are pretty close. Surya Das, like we're like Surya Das and I, but I don't know him. And, uh, I, I I can't attest to like him as a person, but I, from what I know, he seems like such a grounded, such a cool guy. I've heard some of his lectures on YouTube and we've corresponded a little bit and he seems cool. Um, he has a retreat center in Portugal, which seems wonderful. I would, I think, want to discuss Advaita with him because I think his understanding of Advaita is a little different from mine. And I think we compare some notes in regards to Advaita, but I'm deeply indebted to his explanation of Kashmiri Shaivism. I've learned so much from Christopher Wallace's work on Tantra, and I've benefited tremendously from his translations. In fact, um, it was thanks to Christopher Wallace that I finally understood the Dhyana Mantra for Abhinava Gupta. So I'm wholly indebted to Christopher Wallace for like illumining me uh, that mantra from Madhu Raja, uh, Madhu, Madhu Raja. So thank you to the Christopher Wallace. That book was so powerful for me, I loved it. And not only that, there's also the Recognition Sutra. So that's his, Translation of the Pratya Hidayasutra. Hridaya Sutra. While teaching that class, the Pratya Hidayasutra, Hridaya Sutra, I benefited greatly, and I'm greatly indebted to some of Christopher Wallace's translations because there were some Sanskrit words in there that I just like didn't understand. The, gra- the grammar was really difficult, um, and Christopher Wallace's translations really helped me a lot. Especially since I found the jayadeva Singh translation a little unwieldy, hard to work with, you know. So I cross-referenced Christopher Wallace heavily. In that, so I'm very adapted to his the recognition sutras. Those two things I, I like a lot. Um, then you might enjoy this. There are a lot of scholarly, like really good scholarly work on it. You might enjoy um, uh, this. Is cool. So the Paratrisika Vivarana. This is from Abhinavagupta by Jaideva Singh. So it's one of the only translations of Abhinavagupta's Paratrisika, and uh, it's got the secret of tantric mysticism. So already it becomes really exciting. Um, so you might enjoy that. I like this kind of introductory thing by L.N. Sharma, Kashmiri Shaivism. It's just called. It's cute. I love the cover. It's so cute. Um, but yeah, that's that's where you might want to start. Maybe also you might like Muktananda Baba's uh, book, "Play on Consciousness," "Play of Consciousness," "Play of Consciousness." That's an autobiography of. <laughs> yeah, I know. Play of Consciousness, Swami Muktananda. It's an autobiography of a Siddha Siddha Yoga person. So. Swami Muktananda, his disciple is the guru of Christopher Wallace. So when you read Christopher Wallace, you're actually going to be engaging with the Baba Muktananda Nityananda lineage. So it's called Siddha Yoga. They're one of the last living relevant Shiva lineages beside the Ramakrishna order. So like the Ramakrishna order is we do we do mantras that are tantric. right? So we do tantric mantras, and so do they. They do like, they're more Shiva, we're more shakta, the Ramakrishna order. OK, so those are, I think I would say the two living tantric traditions from India. Then, um, Arthur Avalon has some cool translations. I like his translation of the Mahanirvana Tantra called the Tantra of the Great Liberation, Mahanirvana Tantra. So I like that a lot. Um, Then I'm just gonna throw these books out. So of course you can watch the recording later and catch them. Then you might actually really like this. It's very like intellectual. This is the Sri Aurobindo people. David Frawley he's a pundit. He has an Indian pundit name. I think is Pandit Vamadeva, Vamadeva Shastri. So his book called Mantra, Yoga, and Primal Sound. Okay, so you might like that. That's a nice kind of tantric book. And, you know, if, uh, what is it? Deb is asking for the, yeah, David Frawley's cool. Uh, Kali Bhaktas might really like this by Devadatta Kali. It's the, his translation of the Devi Mahatmya, which is the Chandi, the central kind of bhakti text for Kali is the Chandi for Devi worship, and it's called In Praise of the Goddess. It's a translation of the Chandi, and it's my favorite translation of the Chandi, but it also has a commentary in the beginning, like um, quite a lot of commentary. And it describes goddess worship in India. So I drew a lot from the commentary here um, when I gave that lecture, God as a mother. So when we were talking about like Vedic goddesses, I got that from this commentary. So I'm very indebted to this commentary for that lecture. So um, there's also these. I they're not really like that that good, but they're all they're all right. Like this one. There's also a version of the Shakti one. I generally don't that much enjoy secondary sources. Cause I feel like it's just kind of like sensationalist. Like, Oh my God, look at what these Indians are doing. It's so cool. Look at this bare breasted, wild haired goddess. Oh my God, what a hippie Shiva is. You know? Like, I feel like sometimes it gets a little bit like that. So I'm not that big a fan of secondary sources. I prefer, and, and maybe it's a cultural bias, but I just prefer, um, like, and this is a like, Christopher Wallace to me is like an insider, like these Paul Mueller Ortega, um, uh, this guy whose name I can't pronounce. He's like an insider. This doctrine of vibration is perhaps one of the best um, resources on the Spanda lineage. I'm throwing a lot at you. And if you come to Thursday, you'll know it's a very nerdy class because there's a lot of Sanskrit that we have to do. There's a lot of like intellectual stuff. You know why? Because there's so much power in this lineage that if you don't have a proper intellectual acumen, you won't be able to control it. If you go in just like sentimental and shit, you're going to be overwhelmed. So you have to be really armed with intellect. So I'm going to throw a lot of books at you. I'm going to throw one more at you. Um, and to online resources, this you might like. It's more literary. It's more like literary nonfiction than it is spiritual literature. But it it's like an autobiography of a practicing tantrika. It's called The World of Tantra by B. Bhattacharya. So it's like a, a nice book, kind of describing the world of Tantra. And, you know, honestly, to me, there's no better book on Shaktism and Tantra, honestly. And I might be saying this because of like institutional biases, but I think it's the Sri Ramakrishna Lila Prasanga. I think Amal and Tori would agree with me. There's no book that's more wildly, wonderfully Tantric than this. Sri Ramakrishna and, uh, so this is, this is Sri Ramakrishna and his divine play. I'm using the Chetan Anandaji translation. Yeah, this is so cool. And in fact, the abri- <laughs> this is so nerdy. The abridged version of the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, Appendix B, I think, is the section on Tantra by Swami Nikilananda. So Swami Nikilananda gives us an appendix on Tantra. I think it's Nikhilananda; It could be another Swami. There's one on there. That's pretty cool. Um, okay. Sorry, one more. George Firstein's uh Tantra, the paths of ecstasy. This is a really good secondary source. So to me, George Firstine, as Oh my God, an insider as an insider could be. I feel like his understanding of, um, he's a translator. So I've also benefited a lot from his translations. In fact, um, when we were doing the Kula Arnava, no, when we are doing the, what is a guru lecture, I cross-reference a lot of my understanding of the Kula Arnava Tantra with his. So I'm always looking at my translations against his, and I find that mine are really loose, undisciplined and unlearned. And when I look at him, I'm like, okay, he's really helping me a lot. So I'm very grateful to him. The mantra Samhita and the Kularnava—I, my understanding of those texts, I owe almost entirely to his translations that appear in this book. Okay, so one thing I wanna say is that this is classical Tantra. This will cover Tantra from like 500 AD up till about 1050 um, AD. OK, so this covers classical tantra before the invasion of the Moguls in the 12th century. This covers post-classical tantra. Although this says a few things about post-classical tantra, this book says a lot about 13th century and onwards type of Tantra. This will tell you about contemporary 20th century Tantra. So this is where you get like, what Tantra was like in the 19th century going into the 20th century. When you study Vivekananda or Sri Ramakrishna, it's Tantra as Tantra gets. I'm gonna give you an online resource and it's the Vimarsha Foundation by Professor Staneshwar Timalsina. He is, uh, to he's my Shaivacharya I learned so much from very high level classes like pundits go to the classes he studied in Varanasi um, and he's like from the University of Varanasi he taught a little bit at the University of San Diego and now he's like a freelance teacher kind of like this You know, he does this. Um, And if you get a chance, go to some of his classes. So cool. On YouTube, you'll find a lot of lectures from Professor Saneshwar Timalsina. It's called Vimarsha Foundation. So you can go and listen to some of his. And, you know, the craziest thing is that you can right now access, like, actual footage of Swami Lakshmanju, who is perhaps the last living relevant Kashmiri Shaiva master. I say that because the rest of us aren't in Kashmir. Like, I didn't grow up there. So my understanding of Shaivism is a Tamil understanding. I grew up within Shaivism as it evolved in Chidambaram, the temple in the Tamil South, right? So my version of Shaivism is like, I would call it Shaiva Siddhanta with a strong Trika influence. Those of you who are in the room and know those terms, that's what I would describe our Shaivism as. Shaiva Siddhanta with a strong Trika influence. Kashmir Shaivism though, you could say almost entirely died out because of the war and all sorts of things. It almost, but the last living relevant master is uh, Swami Lakshmanju. And we are so fortunate that he was around for the time of video photography. So you could you could watch him give lectures. You can see him giggle. He's, oh my God. Uh, Casey Wood, Casey and I like geek out with Swami Lakshmanju lectures. They have an institute, I think in Oregon, Amal. It's called the Lakshmanju Academy. I think it's upstate somewhere. I don't know, um, in Washington state or Oregon. I don't know where it is, but I just met Elizabeth Usha Harding, who she is at the Kali Mandir. And at the Kalimandir, there's a disciple of Swami Lakshmanju. So, what happened was once I was chanting the Kali in the Kalimandir, she came up to me and she was like, You sound like a Kashmiri. Where'd you learn that? You're chanting in the Kashmiri. So, I'm like, Yeah, I mean, you know, that's our lineage as it came to the South. And she got excited. She said, um, Oh, come, come, come. And she brought me into the room and she pointed to a picture and it was Swami Lakshmanju. And she said, That's my guru. And I'm like, Swami Lakshmanju is your guru? The last living, relevant Kashmiri Shaiva? So anyway, I can go on all night, but I think those are enough, right?
1: Okay, yeah. One more question or two more questions I had. Um, So you have lectures on Monday and Friday. What are the times?
0: Okay, Monday is this time, you know, uh, 7 to like however long. And then um, Thursday is 7.30. So Thursday is for the Shaiva, like almost entirely Tantra. Thursdays, we discuss Tantra and Tantra alone. And in fact, we do texts. So like these classes are general, right? We just do these big topics and I just, I jam. This is my, this is my day off. This is like my leisure. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to have fun. I, you're all sort of captive. I'm just going to enjoy myself. <laughs> That's <laughs> typically what Mondays are. But Thursdays, I, I like to stay with the text. So we go verse by verse. We we did 18, sorry, 19 out of the 20 verses of the Pratyabhikya Hidayasutra one of the foundational texts. And then I left off at verse 18 and went to the Vijnana Bhairava. So now we're doing Vijnana Bhairava Tantra. After this, we're going to do Shiva Bodho Jnana. After that, we're going to do Malini Vijayotara. After that, we're probably going to come back to the Shiva Sutra. So notice, basically, we're just doing Tantras. We're just looking at Tantras. We're analyzing Tantra against the exegetical traditions of Abhinavagupta Gupta and Shema Raja. That's basically Thursday, 7.30 at Yoga World Heart. So that's not with this... Zoom. This is the different. It's a different Zoom. It's it's with a yoga studio. Then the Friday class is new. That's like a new project. So that's um, every Friday at six to seven after our five to um, wait, Amanda. want to quickly ask you a question before you go. If I can quickly do it, I I'd like to. Marlene, Tuesday nights. That's what that's for. Come. Tuesday yeah. night's in person at my house. Yes, Amanda, go.
5: Oh, oh, you want me to ask my question? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Before you go, let me before you sleep.
5: Jane, oh, um, welcome,
0: Jane and Justin. Okay, go, go, go.
5: Sorry, I didn't mean to um, push anything. I didn't
0: uh, take all night. Sorry. <laughs> okay. I'll come back to Dahlia in just a moment. Let me just take Amanda before she goes to bed.
5: Uh, well, I had a lot of questions. Um, that's why I was gonna just post them in the channel. But um, I guess to sort of come back to the thing that I had mentioned earlier, like I um, I definitely think I'm in like the latter of the, the two um, Good. classes that you kind of like spoke to. And um, I was thinking about how like in reality, like in this reality where I'm like identifying with my desires, um, I think, it's often easy to lose, um, track of, um, autonomy and like, uh, like if you're to think about like, if you're not the body, then it's easy to, that can lead you to think that like, if you're the same awareness as everyone else, then what autonomy do you have over yourself? And okay. like,
0: um, this is a really good point. Don't mix The waking with the dream. So you're right. If you superimpose the understanding that you are awareness onto the body and mind, it will mean a lack of boundaries and perhaps um, a lack of like taking medicine or getting enough rest or et cetera. So, um, and, and if you're in a dream and you're thirsty, you drink water, it will solve the thirst. Right. And if you're in a dream and you make lottery money, you won't be able to spend it when you wake up. But in the dream, you might be able to spend it right? So that means in the reality of the dream, everything on that order of the, of reality works. So if on the level of the body, there is a need to rest, eat, um, or fight, or fly, like to set up boundaries to defend the body, that's the body needs to do that, right? So the, the you must recognize that I am not the body. Therefore, the body should be free to defend itself and move out of situations that are not good for it. And then you say, I'm not the mind. That means the mind might need to seek therapy when when it needs it, it, when it needs this. It's all happening on the level of the dream. You are on a different order of reality. So you can be at peace even while those things are happening that need to happen to protect the body and the mind. So it's not like having realized this, you will suddenly automatically not need food anymore. No, you don't need food. The body does, right? So a mature understanding of Advaita Vedanta won't actually change what you do. On the level of the body and mind if you find that as a result of studying this you suddenly change your attitudes about like body and mind or want to move to a different place something I chances are we haven't quite gotten it yet that should all go on right setting up boundaries making sure the body isn't taken advantage of like keeping the body healthy and well rested and well fed all of that should go on as as usual yes
5: yeah yeah i think that's definitely um something that comes up sometimes.
0: Mm. Let me add that you'd be better at doing those things if you adopted the framework that you want the body. You know, so I would say that a lot of times our very natural instincts and intuitions are clouded over by, you know, all of our thoughts and our attachments and all that. We are so attached to our identity and to our lives that we don't hear the signals that our body is sending us. For instance, when it's time to rest, we ignore that because maybe we're attached to promotions or something. Um, When it's time to work, we ignore that because we're attached to um, rest or averse to work or something. Because of all of our complexes, the body doesn't get to express its natural intelligence. So my argument is this, if you no longer think you're a person, actually that will make you more intimate with the like a rising intuition of the body and you'll know to move out of situations that are not good for it. You'll know to eat the foods that are like the body will be better at nourishing itself when you step out of the way and give it the space to do that. That's my second argument.
5: Thank you. Yeah, that is, I think that's, that's really helpful. I think something that I struggle with a lot is like, um, when some like say, um, in work when someone wants me to do something that might not be necessarily what I would normally do, but it would be for maybe the greater good. I get this like, um, like greater good in the sense of like work. Right. Um, (laughs) uh, Like, I think I, I tend to get really in my head about like, well, do I like maintain a boundary or do I like do this, work for someone
0: else yes. or i mean think of it this way if you allow people to like cross your boundaries like for instance if you allow yourself to do work that you don't want to do you are harming that other person because they are now incurring bad karma for what they did to you in other words if you are to defend your boundary you would protect them from the karma they might have to suffer from violating it You see what i mean so you protecting your own boundaries might be the best thing you can do for others to prevent them from unconsciously harming you so your compassion to others is to be stern mean and strict when it's time to be you know great sadhus will sometimes make a show of like throwing a brick at you just to keep you away from them or something like that they're, they're trying to help you not cross their own boundary thank you dear kate thank you so much for coming yeah i know <laughs> no this is a good time for you to honor that <laughs> good 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 yes all right. Good night, dear Kate. So um that's that's what we would say. Let let the body do what it would do. Make sure you defend your boundaries, make sure you listen, and all the while know that you are far away from any harm. You're perfectly at peace.
5: Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. I I'm not gonna ask my other question. Um I think because no. that I feel it feels like a big rabbit hole. <laughs>
0: Well, how about this? How about we schedule a time and then you just like, you know, maybe on Friday, even you could ask it, keep it with you. If you put it in the q I'll try, but I'd much rather answer you like face-to-face on Zoom or something.
5: Okay. Yeah.
6: So
0: let's try to find a time when you can ask it and then we can just kind of hash it out.
5: Oh, yep. man. Yeah. Okay. Um, maybe I should just ask it right now. Um, I just, I feel bad for kind of like skipping everyone that's been waiting. So
2: no, it's
0: my fault. I kind of take so much time with each question because I really want this like, one-on-one time with you, but here we are all together. My assumption is that we all enjoy the discussion, you know, but I'll try to be faster. So if you can like ask one question and then I'll take that one question as quickly as I can, and then I'll move to like Justin, I'll go to Jane and then I'll come back to Amanda. If you want to ask the second question, how about that? Right. So like, hold on to that second question. Um, I'll try to make a quick round from there. And then if you have another question, I'll come back again. Right. Isn't that, isn't that nicer? You think? That way we can take like, okay, one person ask one question, one answer, go to the next person. And if you still have a second question, come back. Good. So let's take Justin and then let's take Jane and then we'll all come back. Come back to Dahlia come back to Matt. Okay, go, Justin.
2: Okay, nice to be here. Um, so I had a, com- like a question about, um, let me formulate my thoughts for a minute, um, like how the jiva expresses itself from life in a lifetime if it eventually if it's just all the same thing you know what i mean for all awareness then mm-hmm. how, like how how are we differentiated
0: yes no, and, no, no. This,
2: and then you kind of answered that with the the expansionist of the contraction and then which then which brought up another question like how are we all aware like how is the awareness everywhere
0: Yeah, if it's, if, but I, I might be con- conflating the mind with no no awareness is not everywhere good night dear westifer okay. okay awareness is not everywhere awareness is not every person right be very careful here awareness is not everything that's the problem like the in your question there's an implication of pantheism or at least panentheism right the idea that like um everything is and somehow awareness has like covered it all <laughs> so the, the Advaitic position is only awareness exists and everything is not, everything is an appearance. So like you say, right. if, if awareness, yeah, exactly, Sydney, exactly right. So now Sydney can start giving these, she already knows all she's memorized all the answers. <laughs> like, um, If you see like a room and I light some incense, you would say, okay, that incense has permeated the room because there was space and the incense was in the space. So if awareness was in space, then when you say awareness is all pervasive, you might mean it in the sense of incense being everywhere, right? But that's not what we mean when we say all pervasive. If we say awareness is all pervasive, what we mean to say is that there's nowhere where it's not because only awareness is. In the same way, if a mirror is reflecting a magic city, everywhere I touch is glass, but that city is not actually there. So you can't say the city is glass. No, glass is glass. The city is an appearance in glass. So in a manner of speaking, you could say the city is glass. And you ask, how is the city glass? I'll say it's not. Glass is glass. The city just appears in the glass. Similarly, if you say awareness is eternal, I don't mean that it lasts for a very long time. I mean to say that it's outside of time entirely such that it's birthless, changeless, deathless. Therefore we say awareness is eternal. There's no when where it's not. Every when is awareness. Everywhere is awareness for only awareness is right. So when you say, Oh, how are we all awareness? We're not all awareness. Only awareness is, you know, that that's hardcore non-duality. We have to stay with only awareness is everything else is an appearance. That kind of solves the question, right? It solves the question by dissolving the question. Right. Okay. But if you want a Kashmiri Shaivite answer, the answer would be this. Every pair of eyes is a different vantage point through which awareness is looking. So there's only one awareness, but that awareness looks through every set of eyes the same way a light can shine through many holes in a lamp. So if I put a light in a lamp and I made some holes, there would seem to be many different streams of light. And they would all be little rays of that one light, but it's all coming from the same light. Similarly, Shiva is the only awareness that exists. And all of us, you could say then, are so many windows through which Shiva is gazing at himself. That's another way you said. how are we all awareness? Well, we're all awareness because only awareness is. And we're all so many apertures of that awareness to experience itself through itself.
2: Okay, then what is Jiva exactly? If Nothing. Nothing.
0: Yes, yeah. according to Advaita Vedanta, a jiva never was, a jiva never is, a jiva never will be. What is a jiva, Justin? An error.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I like I was like, it just seems like another way of identifying a person. Yeah. Yes.
0: If I say in in Advaitic sense that the jiva is like a person, if I was Gaudapada about it, I'd say, no, there's no jiva. In fact, he says that, right, in the uh, Mandukya Karaka. He says, na uh, mumukshu. Na vai He's saying there's nobody who's seeking after liberation and there's nobody who's liberated. He he believes in liberation. He just doesn't believe in liberated people. And not only that, he says na na badho na vai There's no bondage and there's no uh, spiritual aspirants because he doesn't believe in personhood at all. So that means that Jiva, according to Gaudapada, is just a mistake. So you could say Jiva is an error. What is the Jiva? Jiva is Brahman occluding itself from itself. Okay. Um, Okay, Shankara would say Jiva is like a dream. Jiva is like a dream person. It exists insofar as you're in the dream. But once you wake up, you realize there was no dream self. It was all a figment of your imagination.
2: Is this why we get so tied up in Maya? Is because we are... Quali- quantitatively different from the overall Brahman, like you're just like a small piece, a small piece. So we can't really see the whole picture.
0: You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that would be maybe more Vishishtadvaita, the idea that we're all parts of the one. So we can only yeah. see a very small fraction. That that's a type of Vedanta too, Ramanuja Vishisht Vishishtadvaita, the idea that like no, we're not all Brahman. It's not. We can't say that I am Brahman. I am a part of Brahman right? That's, that's a, an approach too. It's certainly an approach. But uh, you would say then in that case, that insofar as you consider yourself a jiva, then you are a part. But insofar as you consider yourself the awareness of that jiva, then you and Brahman are identical. And insofar as you consider yourself an embodied jiva, then you are the servant of that Brahman who appears to you as Saguna Brahman. This is Hanuman Ji's you know, formulation. If I am the body, Deha, I am your servant. You are the the master which I think is my original
2: understanding of how this works, but which is not a far leap from saying that I am Brahman to saying I am part or parcel of Brahman. No, no, you are Brahman.
0: Yeah. You are Brahman. Yeah, yeah, I am, yeah. You are Brahman and you can say, well, I am Brahman. And if I step down from that, yeah, I'm part, part and parcel of Brahman. If you step down further, you can say I'm separate from Brahman. All those three attitudes are legit at different levels of spiritual experience. In the highest level though, the absolute truth of the matter is only Brahman is and you are not. Yes. Yes. <laughs> thank you. Beautiful question.
2: I, I I must go now. So have a good night.
0: All right, sleep beautifully, Justin. Thank you for your patience. Bye. Lou said she could. Uh, they could stay up. So then I inflicted it on all of you. Okay, Jane. Please. Hello. Welcome.
7: Um, thank you. So I have been starting at the beginning of your podcast and one of the things that really landed with me was the in one of the first podcasts you talked about how the importance of asana is that it gives us roots for our practice and um i've kind of i've spent a lot of my life um incapacitated with pain And laid out on the flat of my back for long periods of time for lack of capacity to do anything else. And I'm no longer in that position. I now have like a body that can move, which is very cool, very strange new territory. But um, in all of that stillness, I made contact with whatever I made contact with. And a lot of this philosophy. that you're sharing is very familiar to me. I I actually, a few weeks ago, I started reading um,
0: Autobiography of a Yogi. That's the one, yep. I can't
7: even get autobiography out of my mouth. Um, And as I was reading that, all of these memories of, you know, different lives spent in India and all of these things, all of these memories started to come back. I was like, oh, well, I know where to go. And (laughs) this is the place to go. So I've been immersing myself in in all of the, everything here. And um, I feel like I kind of come at things backwards, which is very much my way in this lifetime for sure. And the direct experience of a lot of these things that are being gestured at through many philosophical approaches are things that I've spent a lot of time steeped in for lack of anything else to do because I couldn't do anything else. Um, But now I'm having the awareness that asana gives us roots for practice and then bringing that back around to what you were talking about tonight and that the body and the mind have renounced awareness, which is the non-self that becomes self that is self. Um uh so if then what brings beingness aside from non-dual awareness into being is the body-mind renouncing awareness, then is the purpose of asana and yoga in general to um stitch those things back together. Not even, I don't even want to call it stitching, but it feels like a dance. It feels like play. It feels very erotic in the way that play is erotic and a re, um, coming together of those things, even though the paradox being that the body is a manifestation of awareness and never not awareness, but it's like, Hey, let's play this game and like come and find each other in our little disguises. And then, so we can go this way again and then come this way and all of the different pan-dimensional directions simultaneously, but bringing it in, in a way that we can walk in that awareness in our physical body, knowing that we aren't our physical body. And that's like what, Like I'm feeling how having an asana practice brings those things that for me are very real. Like I get that. I feel that I'm living it, but living it in a body that can hold it as I'm walking physically in the world, isn't something I've had the capacity for. And I'm feeling like the playful eroticism of like, asana being like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come and build this so that you can walk and play the game while you're standing upright and play with other people in this way. And, um, yeah, I mean, I guess it's not really so much a question as it is. I see that. And I see that in this context and as a result of this conversation and in the, also in the context of like stepping out of patterns my pattern has been lying on the flat of my back because it's what I've had the capacity to do so when I don't know what to do I do that and and beginning an asana practice has been whispering to me and being like here's a thing that you could do (laughs) that isn't this and um, I've a few pieces of things that you've shared through various um, channels including tonight have brought different parts of pattern breaking by bringing different layers of knowing and so yeah i guess i just wanted to share that and say thank you and i'm excited to start asana because it feels like an avenue for embodied play in the way that like that's what i'm here for i am here to
6: play <laughs> so
0: you know yeah. jane as as you're saying this i bet all the tantrikas in the room are like drunk with (laughs) just like listening to you, right? So wait, I want to point out a few things. There are a few very, very important things in what you said, Jane. The first was what stillness taught you. Mm. Notice Shiva lies like a corpse there he is the embodiment not embodiment sorry he is the transcendental awareness he's pure awareness right so this is the himalayan perspective that we usually talk about this idea of you are not the body you are not the mind the world with its bodies and minds are not but so many appearances coming and going in the boundless spacious awareness that you are so the feeling the vibe of this kind of teaching is very diffuse it's thrilling and it feels like you're this luminous sky a huge expanse of spaciousness, and the Buddhists would call it the clear light of the void. It's very freeing and very expansion, expanding, you know, um, but it can be very diffuse and like out there. So I love that you're saying when you were still and you were laid up with a physical, I think it's a wonderful opportunity that whatever physical situation you had gave you a window into that. So now when I say all of it, it, you recognize it. You're like, yes, I felt that to be true in stillness. Then as a result of integrating those teachings from stillness, then we get Shaivism where you see Kali arising from Shiva. Uh, You can't can't really see it there, but notice Kali is always dancing on top of Shiva. They're a co-joined pair. They're not different. They're one and the same. So Kali and Shiva are two sides of the same coin. That luminous void, that space of Shiva is also the pulsating, throbbing, ebbing and flowing ocean of fullness that is existence. So we would say in this tradition, Shivaika eva rupa kevalam, vishwa sharira Shivaika eva rupa kevalam. This whole world is the pulsating, throbbing body of God. God is the being whose body is the whole world and you are that. So when you feel yourself to be this transpersonal awareness, then you realize, well, what's the point of embodiment? To play and to dance. So I've often said before that yoga is not like Hatha yoga is not a practice that you do to get something. It's an expression of something that you already are. Mm. So all spiritual practice is that if you understand the truth of Advaita, meditation is not a practice. It's a treat. Do you understand? Like this this is a very important point. You could, Can you imagine? You can just sit there and delight in the self. It's beautiful. In the Dakshina Murti Sutra, you know, Mauna Vakyam, Parabrahma, Tattvam Yuvanam. There's like a beautiful song to Dakshina Murti, And in that song, it says the teacher is young, the students are old, the students are great sages devoted to Brahman. Avritam brahma nishtaihi. They're devoted to Brahman. And the teacher speaks in silence and expresses Brahman with profound silence and awakens in others through silence, that same Brahman. All the while he sits, his face blissful, glowing with the joy of the self. He sits perfectly content, delighting in the self. Like that. So like, here he is, he's expressing his Shiva nature now. Dakshinamurti is a form of Shiva. He's sitting there, he's still, he's silent, and he's delighting in the pure bliss of contemplating and being absorbed in Brahman. Wonderful. Stillness, that's Shiva. Then that same person who's sitting still might dance and might, like in Sri Ramakrishna's case, sing a song or dance in ecstasy or speak and, and share and move about. And that's not different. It's stillness in motion. And stillness is motion and stillness. Like, there's no difference between Shiva and Shakti. That is the feeling of like, <gasps> It, and it's a kind of eroticism, you're right, but it's something so far beyond like it's like the eroticism that humans feel is allegory for that. You know, so then even the Shaiva like spiritual journey is described in terms of coupling, where you know, Shiva and Shakti are one, and then for fun, they, like you said, come apart, and tantra is stitching them back together, exactly like you said. So she goes down to the base, the root chakra, coils three and a half times around the tailbone and promptly falls asleep. While she's asleep. Such is her power that she runs the body, digestion, respiration, all of that. She runs all of it, but she's still sleeping. Then if you come to lectures like this, if you hang out with, you know, the crazy folk that you see all around you, chances are from reading books, from being in the company of holy uh, holy company, all of that, suddenly she wakes up. And the spiritual journey in Shaivism is the journey of Kundalini Shakti up the spine, back home to her lover, Shiva, who's in the crown. They're not different yet they pretend to be different for this wonderful romantic, erotic kind of flirtation of separation and reuniting. So yes, you're right. If we are practicing tantrikas, we must practice on every level of our being. On the body, there's hatha yoga. In the energetic body, there's pranayama and creative visualizations for the mind. For the intellect, there are all these philosophies. And when you integrate and embody the teaching on all levels of your being, that's genuine tantra. However, if you're just like in the intellect and you've somehow renounced the body and the mind, that's a step, but it's not yet the culmination of spiritual life. The next step is to reclaim that which you pushed aside and embody yourself even more. So if we could sum this up, we would say tantra is first negation followed by deeper affirmation. So it's like, I am this body and mind. No, I'm not. I'm the transpersonal awareness Shiva in which the world is but an appearance. And from there I go, no, I'm all bodies and minds. The world is very real. And it's none other than that Shiva, that Shakti taking form for fun. <laughs> Love that. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. So yeah, come to some Hatha yoga classes, dance a bit, and you might enjoy um, the Thursday night class too, right? Cause that's Tantra. Talking
7: yeah. About. I think you'll probably be seeing a lot of me. I, uh, have all my time free <laughs> Good. so
0: <laughs> yeah thank you as, as we all right yes we we all like to believe that we don't but if we wanted to stay up all night we could you know i mean like you're free to do whatever if you want it like, <laughs> there's nothing to do but this what will you do where will you go what else is there <laughs>
7: <laughs> the eternal question right
0: <laughs> a great monk said to me what else is there to do we're talking about like, okay, so say after realization, do you practice? And the answer is, what else is there to do? What, go to Wall Street, make money? I don't know. I feel like as a, as a result of spiritual practice, you become enlightened. Then it's not chop wood, carry water. It's do japa, sing kirtan. Right? Like post, before enlightenment, do japa, sing kirtan. After enlightenment, do even more japa, sing even more kirtan. <laughs> that seems to be the way it is. Do, <laughs> do. Hi. And uh, Red, I I don't know if you saw Red, the Kula Kula chat, you know, on the Discord. Go there. I texted you something, but I don't know if you saw it. I was going to email it to you. But while you're here, I thought I would just tell you like on the Discord, like I I was responding to what you had said in that chat. So go and see it. Okay. Just so you know, because I missed you. All right. So let's take Ash and I'll come back to um, Dahlia. So thank you, dear Amanda G. I'll come back to you in just a moment. And then thank you, dear Jane. So thank you, Rose. Good night to you. Sleep well. Okay. Yes, Ash. I haven't taken your questions in a while. So.
8: I know. It's been a while since I've attended q and I've just been so busy taking care of the house. But um, I had a question from the... I had two questions, actually. So one is about Tantra and um, Advaita Vedanta, don't they? Because when I was listening it today, it seems like they kind of contradict. But I don't know if that's just me because in, in Tantra, is like um, oh... It's she. It's Kali. She wants to enjoy like like life out of you. You know, like you know, Tantra's all about like yeah, let it like let it happen, let it like be like enjoyable. And then isn't Advaita Vedanta? Oh, resist your desires. Um, try to like not give them up, but like focus your mind on something else.
0: Yeah. No, you're right to say that that path, the Advaita Vedanta path, is more monastic and a little more heavy on renunciation. So it's like yoga, but no boga. Like worldly enjoyment is like harshly condescended to in uh, Advaita Vedanta. In fact, they say to even study Advaita Vedanta, you have to be a monk because it won't work. You know, it won't work to study Advaita Vedanta if you're still attached to the world. I guarantee you, you can study Advaita all you want. Um, it will all go out the window. Sri Ramakrishna used to give a very beautiful parable. You say the thorn, there's no thorn and there's no one to be pricked. And yet you go out the moment you touch a thorn. Like that. And and Krishna, when he was talking to Arjuna, they were talking about this between uh, path of enlightenment, jnana yoga and the path of love, bhakti. And Arjuna straight up asked Krishna, which is better? Krishna, without missing a beat, says bhakti. And if you ask him why, he would say, you know, it works. Jnana yoga works. It's the direct path, but it's very difficult in this age where people feel themselves to be the body. the the cravings of the body are very strong. The need of the body for like security, for safety, for comfort, uh, the need of the body for pleasure is very strong. So we'd say in the Kali Yuga, it's very difficult to go the route of the traditional Vedantic monk. So when Sri Ramakrishna wanted to learn Vedanta, he had to take sannyas first. You know, so Totapuri, his his Advaita guru gave him sannyas. They sat by a fire, they did the Tishupurna mantra, and uh, he became a monk, he renounced the world. Uh, not like he was attached to the world to begin with, but he still had to go through the ceremony. And that tells you that in Advaita Vedanta, we stress renunciation a lot. And um, you can see why you can, I mean, if you don't practice renunciation, you won't even have the gap between you and the mind to see that your awareness beyond the mind. It's very difficult to practice Advaita. So what does Tantra do? Tantra says, yeah, you want stuff in the world. You want Bhogha, you want to enjoy the world. So it's okay, go ahead and enjoy the world. And it will give you a graded approach. So while you want to enjoy the world, and Marlene's like, don't tempt me. Tantra tempts you. Tantra says, take some mantras, go out and play, right? But all the while, it's telling you that there is a higher life. That beyond the material world and the pleasures, which are nice and should be enjoyed, there are higher pleasures. So gradually, 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 progressively, you go from the lower pleasures to the higher pleasures, and tantra is holding your hand the whole way. They are not at all, though, contradictory in terms of philosophy. Because if you say, oh, all right, here's the if you say here's the big difference, a pundit might say. In Advaita Vedanta, the world is unreal. It's Maya. Whereas in Kashmiri Shaivism, the world and the world process is affirmed as real. In Advaita, it's just being. There's no becoming. Whereas in Tantra, it's being and becoming. No, that's not true. If you read the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra, as we're doing on Thursday, the very opening teaching from Shiva is that Devi. This world is nothing but a dream, swatna. It's nothing but an illusion. In fact, Shiva says this this world is Gandharva Nagara. It's a city of Gandharvas built in the clouds. It has no real substance. And then he says, Devi, we thought that it has substance. We thought that the world was real for lower aspirants so that they too could spiritually advance. So, you know, really, it seems like in the higher regions of Shaivism, what we're saying is exactly what Gaudapada is saying. There is no world. It's all an illusion. Shiva basically just revealed that stuff for lower aspirants out of his mercy. So then you say, huh, what is Tantra doing here? Look, this is, this is so important. Tantra is not positioning itself as a philosophical system. That's what I think. My, my theory is that Tantra is positioning itself as the harmonization and the syncretization of all Indian spiritual attitudes all throughout history. So Tantra is saying, ah, look at those shamanic, non-Vedic tribalist practices. Come, they have a place too. Look at those super transcendentalist Vedic uh, Upanishadic practices. Come, they have a place too. So we're going to fuse together Vedic Upanishadic tradition with shamanic pan-Indian non vedic traditions and then we're going to address all the aspirants on all the different levels of spiritual life and we're going to unite it all under one this one big umbrella called tantra so don't think of tantra as okay. this is what it says and this is what vedanta says no tantra says so many different things it contradicts itself all the time and so too do the upanishads that's why there are three different types of vedantas dualistic non-dualistic and in between qualified non-dualistic in shaivism you have dualistic shaivism shaiva Siddhanta, you have qualified non-dualistic shaivism Okay, good night, dear Lewis, which is Raudra Agama. Your hair looks wonderful, by the way. I like the new hairdo. Beautiful. Okay, good night. So you have Raudra Agamas, and then you have the Bhairava Agamas. And then you can say, oh, so are you trying to tell me that only the Bhairava Agamas are true? No, because if you're saying that, what you're saying is Shiva lied. He lied in the Shaiva Agamas. He lied in the Raudra Agamas. No, he won't lie. He's just telling people what they need to hear at the, the time that they need to hear it. In the Vignana Bhairava, he says, it's like a mother giving sweets. Or like telling scary stories to frighten children. That's what duality is like. It's just a story that I told to like help people. The truth is that, and he's saying to Devi, this is the highest truth. And he said, idam tantra sara. This is the very essence of tantra. He's teaching Advaita. Isn't that interesting? Shiva in the Vijnana Bhairava tantra claims that this is the very essence of tantra. Yet he teaches exactly what Advaita teaches. This is a dream. This is an illusion. Look at the Shiva Sutra. Verse seven of the Shiva Sutra. What's happening? Vamadeva. No, sorry. Vasugupta. He's praying, Vasugupta praying under the mountain. Shiva appears to him and then teaches him what later becomes the Shiva Sutra, 77 verses of Shiva's teachings. Verse 7 through, I don't know, 15, what is he, Shiva doing? Shiva is just teaching Mandukya Upanishad, waking, dreaming, deep sleep, Turiya, the fourth. Beyond. Like, if you look at what Shiva is actually teaching the highest aspirants of Shaiv- uh, Shaivism, he's just teaching Mandukya, he's just teaching Gaurabhada. Um, So you could say, Advaita Vedanta, then, this is my feeling, is one of the highest pedagogical revelations within the system of Kashmiri Shaivism, which also includes lower pedagogical revelations. And then Kashmiri Shaivism is the syncretic harmonization of all those spiritual attitudes all throughout spiritual life. So it offers one final mode. Once you go past the Gaudapada, like, okay, this is all void and illusion, then you get to what Sri Ramakrishna would call Vijnanavada, which is what was previously called unreal is now reclaimed as real, but more real than you ever thought it could be. So this world is real, but no, not in the way that you previously thought. So the Advaitins are right. This world is unreal. And it's only through saying this world is unreal that you can see its actual reality. You know. So then I say, okay, what do the Upanishads say? Sarvam kalvidam Brahma, everything is Brahma. What does Tantra say? It is Shivam, everything is Shiva. I don't see any contradiction. Uh, Upanishad says, the world is a dream, it's an illusion. And yet they say everything is Shiva. Look at, uh, or everything is um, uh, Brahman. And then look at Shaivism. It says, the world is a dream. Vijnanabhaidava, verse eight, eight uh, verse 13, right? And then Shiva Sutra, verse seven. And yet it says all of this is Shiva. So when you really look at it, I don't see a contradiction. I don't see a difference. More importantly, one last thing I'll say is look at what the Shankaracharyas are doing. You know, the Shankaracharyas, the kind of, in their ashramas, and these are like the popes of Hinduism, right? Like the most revered authorities in the scriptural world, they're worshiping Sri yantra no? So Swami Sadananda, in his Lila Prasanga, says that true tantrika, sorry, true Advaitins, true Vedantins, practice tantrika. Practice tantra. They do tantric mantras. They um, worship the Sri Yantra. They do tantric rituals. And the more they progress in Vedanta, the more interested they become in Kashmiri Shaivism because the more they see that verifying their own experience. All right. So let's leave it at that. Oh, wait. Sorry. Shankara. Look at his Soundarya Lahari. I'm going to put that in the chat. This is a poem from Shankara. It's called the Soundarya Lahari. It means waves of beauty. And it's addressed, believe it or not, surprise, surprise, to Kalima. To Devi, Shankara is writing hymns to Devi and they're incredibly tantric. So I would suggest if you take Shankara's Saundarya Lahari and put it next to Abhinava Gupta's Devi Stutra, compare the two. Devi Stutra, Abhinava Gupta, Saundarya Lahari, Shankara. And then, if Shankara then is the ultimate embodiment of Advaita Vedanta, and if Abhinavagupta is the ultimate embodiment of Tantra, those two poems next to each other will prove to you definitively whatever the pundits might say. There's no difference.
8: Oh man, that was a that was a lot to unload. I feel so much to study. <laughs> there's so much Tantra, so much advice. Because I was like thinking to myself, I was like, "Can you be the? Can you be like a Tantra Vedantist?" And I wasn't sure, but. I was like, it makes sense. I mean, you can be anything if you really think about it. And then my second question was about the reincarnation part we were talking about in lecture. So you were like, um, when when like the this body and this mind dies, your awareness, the seven heavens, the seven hells. So I thought we. Well, my grandma says, you know, she's a Hindu. <laughs> obviously, she was like, you wait in line, and then you as you progress, you like the line. They let you see heaven for a glimpse, and then hell, and then you go back. So I'm not, yeah.
0: That's actually in the Mahabharata. That's what happens to Yudhishthira. He he goes to heaven first, right? So it's horrible. I mean, the end of the Mahabharata is so tragic. This great hero, right, Yudhishthira, who throughout the whole Mahabharata, except for like lying to, sort of lying, right, to Drona, like the yeah. Except for that, except for his one lie, which, by the way, Krishna pressured him into telling, <laughs> except for his sort of lie, um, which is, you know, you could say it's a technicality. It really lie, because, yeah, I mean, Ashwataman, the elephant died. Sure. Anyway, throughout the whole Mahabharata, he's like the embodiment. He's literally the son of Dharma. He's the embodiment of Dharma. And then, you know, at the end of his life, he's walking in the Himalayas with his dog and he's like sickly and he gets to heaven. And he gets there and then Veda Vyasa takes him up to heaven and then says, look, look, all your brothers. And he looks and he sees fucking Duryodhana is there. And like all the 99 sons of Dhritarashtra who are all assholes and they're all in heaven. They're all like drinking the Amrita and they're having a great time. And Duryodhana comes and embraces Yudhishthira and Yudhishthira is like, what? Where are my brothers? Where are the four other great men of India? The great, and where's Draupadi? Where's my wife? Where are all the the heroes? And then Veda Vyasa is like, yeah, about that. They all went to hell. (laughs) Can you imagine a story where all the good guys go to heaven and all, sorry, all the bad guys go to heaven, all the good guys go to hell. So Yudhishthira says, fine, if they're in hell, take me there. You know, I want to see them. So Veda Vyasa takes him to hell and then he sees them and they're saying, oh, we're suffering, but our suffering is lighter because you're here, Yudhishthira, and Yudhishthira is sad. And he goes, okay, well, if, well, if he can help you, then here, I'll stay. So he stays in hell. The greatest character goes to hell. So he goes to heaven, then he goes to hell. And then as a result, he transcends both. He's okay with hell. And as a result of being okay with hell and recognizing the problem with heaven, he transcends both and he attains to moksha. So actually it's the happiest possible ending, but the human mind can't quite grasp it. So I think that's where maybe your uh, apuchi might be getting that.
8: Yeah, because i think so i mean she she's done like a lot of stuff she's read a lot of stuff i mean you just kind of spoiled the Mahabharata for me but it's okay <laughs> <laughs> i hadn't finished it um but now i know and then i have more questions but i'll watch it and then figure them out but yeah that sounds like because you were like oh um you can like there's seven looks and then you know you choose like not you choose but like you based on your merit your karma you go into like those so i was like when at what point do you get reincarnated? They're like, okay, yeah, 50 days, enjoy. Then you're going to go back. Yeah, it's like
0: that. It's like that. There are 14 lokas. I mean, vedically speaking, there are 14 lokas, right? Like seven heaven ones, seven hell ones. And they're all these, and you, they they have calculations too. They say one day in the loka, right? Is 365 days in our time. So that means if a year goes by, they only have a day. So that's why they, even the Vedic ceremonies, if I'm going to do my my worship to the Pitris, right? Like forefathers, there's a thing that I only have to do once a year. Because if I do it every once a year, then they will have that worship every once a day. Like that. So there's all these Vedic calculations of Lokas. If, and in the Bhagavatam, there's like some stuff like that. So yeah, you're right. There's a calculation and the Vedic seers have done it. But the point here being, it's all limited. So, okay, well, let's say you get 50 days because of your karma. You've got good punya, you go 50 days and I don't know. Devi Loka or something you'll have to be reincarnated again you will have to leave the hotel and who knows when well I guess the merit the merit that you get will determine when do you know maybe not it's not clear as to whether you know how long you get to stay in the hotel I sense that it's like a rude awakening like you're just there for a while like blissed out or whatever and then suddenly you like wake up from the dream and you're back oh
8: that would suck I don't know it's like a horrible ending of a movie like it was all a dream Yes, and now you're waking back up in this body.
0: You're like, what? Of of course, I don't know, but I'm feeling. This is the reason I say this. My feeling here is because there's a kind of sort of disillusionment or dissatisfaction latent in the Upanishadic seers like criticism of heaven. They saying, like, look, you've enjoyed heaven enough. And as Vivekananda said, I'm teaching you now not to want that anymore. I think it's because the rude awakening that comes with any pleasure is that it ends. No matter how good the pleasure is, soon it ends and it leaves you wanting for more. And I think that's why they come down from heaven like you would come down from a drug trip and are so intensely dissatisfied that they were forced to work out this deeper solution to the problem of suffering, namely oh, Brahma Yeah. I
8: don't know. In my head, I've always thought of, like, you know, before um, I learned from you, I always thought, like, you know, the separate gods, like, if you die, you go to your each heaven. It was like, oh, yeah, Allah's over here. Yeah, like, Judaism was over there. But, like, now, like...
0: That that idea is there. In Hinduism, it's like, okay, so you love Devi. What's going to happen? You're going to go to Devi Loka. If you love Vishnu, you're going to go to Vaikuntha. If you love Shiva, you're going to go to Kailash. That idea is there, right? Like whatever God you love, you'll be able to go to that God's realm. So I don't think you're far off in saying if you're Christian, you'll go to like the Christian realm and enjoy heaven the way. It's like the same way that God appears to Teresa of Avila like Jesus, not like Krishna. Mm -hmm. So God can't be Krishna, right? Because if God was Krishna, then God would appear to Teresa of Avila as Krishna. But he didn't. She appeared as Jesus. Yes. And neither can God just be Jesus because God appeared to Chaitanya as Krishna. So that means that God, in unlimited and infinite as she is, can take on any sari that befits the spiritual aspirant's taste. And that's true of this world. So why wouldn't it be true post-mortem? So if you love Kali and you haven't yet um, become liberated, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to enjoy Kali in a more intimate way in the Devi Loka. Right. So I think that yeah. idea is totally tenable.
8: Okay. Yeah. Thank you for answering my question. I just had these two, so I was like, I hope they're still on. I had a feeling you would still be on because I know you told Luz that, you know, you got to go all night. So like 99% he's still here. So I'm going yeah. to pop it and ask him real quick. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
0: I got excited by Luz's comment. She was like, I don't have work in the morning. I'm going to stay out. And I thought, okay, I'm there. Let's do it.
8: I, I saw that and I was like, they're going to go all night. I know like, it. So I was like, go I harder- have time. <laughs>
0: Yeah. I got triggered. She's like, you want, she was like, I want to go hard. I'm like, let's go double feature tw- two lectures. Like in one, and Q&A. <laughs> What else is there to do? Swami yeah. Swami would say. Yeah, anyway, yeah. on the point of Veda and Tantra, like I wanted to close with that before mm-hmm. I go back to Dalia. And it's this, I would say I'm definitely philosophically a Vedantist, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm almost like, you could say a Gaurapada loyalist and a, like a non-duality junkie. I love Gaudapada. I love Shankara. And I almost exclusively teach Advaita Vedanta. But when it comes to practice, I do my Japa like a Tantrika. I do Tantric puja's every day. Um, I've got my Sri Yantra. I've got my Kali Yantra. Um, so much of my practice is Tantric. You could then say, philosophically, I'm a Vedantin. Practically, I'm a Tantrika. And I guess, arguably, that's the way you would do it. You know?
8: I see. Because that's what I was thinking. I was like, I think Nish is um, you know, a Vedantist person so i was like i think you could do it like that because obviously you know most of your lectures are like vedanta so most of what i learned from it is vedanta and that's why like most of my thinking is like that too so that's how i was like can i still like like i was like can i mix and match i'm glad i can but you know it's pretty new i feel like i'm relearning everything every single day but like it never gets old which good. is the good thing i have questions same questions that have been answered 50 times before and then i just keep answering them again i'm like this okay yeah. a little right here
0: <laughs> yes no i really value for like i'll just say this the most important virtue to me in spiritual life is renunciation you know it's very difficult to move along the spiritual path without genuine renunciation so anything that can create that for you is good good night dear jane and look at Jenna's share. If you can see in the chat, Jenna is saying, and maybe Jenna, you can share it a little bit. I, I think that'd be really cool to hear from you describe that because that I think is almost a firsthand experience of the Locas. I love that. Let me just say this though, before we go to Jenna and it's this, it's um, like, oh my God, what was I saying? I got excited about the locus. The, uh, what is it? Oh, oh, oh yes. Renunciation. So if you're attached to the world in any capacity, right, that's, To what degree you're attached to the world, that's obviously going to affect your spiritual practice. You'll just practice less because there are other things in your life aside from spirituality. And those things just seem so urgent and seem so pressing because they seem so real. Whereas spirituality, they're all like concepts, you know, Maya, Brahman, like these are all so conceptual and theoretical, abstract even, but my deadlines are real. (laughs) So it seems in the beginning. So the degree to which you're attached to, to your identity, to your story in the world, your pleasures, all of that, Um, To that degree, I think spiritual life will be hampered. That's been my experience. And you'll see with the great sages, like the Buddha, like Jesus, like Ramakrishna, like Krishna, renunciation is always um, stressed as the highest virtue. Okay, now the most important teaching then for me is Ramakrishna's mudra. You know, when you see Ramakrishna, he's like, he's doing this. He said, what is that? Once a, 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 a monk said to me, this is him saying, the world, what is this world? Nothing that alone is real. That's what this is. The world is nothing. That alone is real. You'll hear him say again and again, he's like, the world is unreal. God alone is real. His first, almost his first instruction to M contains the instruction, discern between the real and unreal. Premise your life upon that, which you can be sure about the real awareness. Don't be drawn into the muck of the world. He said, if you do allow yourself to be drawn into all of that, you will be weighed down by its sorrows, its griefs, its stories. And then you say, look, uh, remember, Amal was even talking about the cat story. The moment a person is free to practice spirituality, they immediately get a cat, you know, because they like, at least that will distract them from doing spiritual life. Like we're so ready to do everything and anything but our practice. And so I would say Vedanta is very, yeah, no. <laughs> sometimes a cat comes to you, what can you do? But I would say Vedanta is like a super powerful technique to gain that renunciation. That's why Vivekananda was such a hardcore Vedantist, but himself look at the poems he wrote to mother. He saw mother Kali. His teachings are many places, super tantric, but he spearheaded his teachings with Vedanta, right? So Sri Ramakrishna, when he was asked to essentialize like thousands of pages of spiritual instruction, he said, the world is unreal and God alone is real. So that's why I love Vedanta because it gives you Mayavada. If I use Mayavada, I can diminish the sense of me, mine and my story. And not only that, Advaita Vedanta with its Mayavada gives me karma yoga, because through Advaita Vedanta, I realize that I am the same as everybody, and therefore I should work selflessly. Now, that actually, funnily enough, prepares you for the experience of Tantra. Not the, like talking about Tantra, philosophies of Tantra, yes, the world is real. No, it's only in negating the world that you thought was real, that the real world of Shakti can be felt. You know, so you're sitting there, and because you've used your Vedanta, you can just sit there in peace. And it's only in that peace where you will hear the wind murmuring through the leaves above you. You know, oh, that's my hair. Like, that's part of me. You know, you'll feel like the grass, the way the grass bends, you'll feel, that's me. And then you can sing with Khalil Gibran, the wind longs to play with your hair and the earth delights at the kiss of your feet everyone is you, there's nothing that you need because you are all of it. Like you'll feel that, but not until you develop renunciation. And and mark my words, if there's any lust whatsoever, to that degree which you feel lust, to that degree you will be identified with me, mine and my story. If you feel any greed whatsoever, any ambition, to the degree to which you feel greed and ambition, that degree is that degree where you feel. So insofar as I'm me, I can't be Kali, I'm me, you know? So if Advaita Vedanta is used first, it will remove the error of me using Mayavada or Buddhism is as powerful, Shunyavada, remove the error of me. And once I'm gone, who remains? Shiva. Then you become a practicing tantrika, you know? Yes. That's, that's what I would argue.
8: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you. Itti, Esha, Paramarata, Taha. This is the highest truth, says Gaurabada. Itti, esha, paramar, This is the highest truth. Um, what does Shiva say? Vijnanabhaidava. Idam, tantrasara. This is the essence of the tantras. And it's almost always about renunciation. You can't skip to it, but you'll ultimately get to it. You know, lust will fall away. It can't but fall away. Greed will fall away. It can't but fall away. And what will be left is something far better than anything the world can give. But who wants to hear that? Who... Who, what What spiritual teacher will ever get a following telling the truth, right? I mean, I guess there'll they'll be a small band and then they'll, they'll be crucified, right? Like the idea is what people want is a teacher that will tell them they can have both. And more importantly, what people want is a teacher that will justify and make excuses for their wilderness, you know? Oh, yes, go out, taste all the candy. It's good. It's spiritual. I'm going to pay that teacher. <laughs> but you try it. And that's the only thing that like, you eventually knock around enough in the world to realize like real spirituality, genuine spirituality is what Jesus is living, is what Buddha is living. It's what Rama Krishna and Rama Krishna are living. Give me a drink of that, right? And unfortunately that beverage, that cocktail is called renunciation. <laughs> there can be no other way, it seems, right? And the, But I should say this, when I say there can be no other way, but what I'm saying is there are many ways to get that renunciation. There are infinite ways. You can do it through Islam, through self-surrender. You can do it Christianity. You can do it through uh, Buddhism. You can do it through Advaita. But you can't avoid the ultimate conclusion is renunciation. Not my will, but thy will be done. You must put yourself down. Like, no, I, mean, I don't mean it's like, oh, this is bad. I mean, you must put down the burden of the self. That's what religion is. I can go all night. So let's go back to Jenna and let's hear this wonderful Devi Loka story. Yes, dear Jenna.
6: Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's so like the memory, like it's a memory of a memory, right? So like I, as, as I was having this experience or this memory or whatever, I was already on like lots of acid. So it's hard to like quantify it, I guess. Um, but, and, and what I seem to recall is not like an episode, like an episodic memory. Like I don't have like pictures or visuals to go along with it um it's just like it's more like a memory of a feeling but i was just like <sighs> home and i was and it was warm and pure and love and i knew i had to leave and i wasn't ready to leave and i but i remember like coming through the birth canal and as soon as i was like and i was like crying i was like no please don't make me go and as soon as i like saw the blinding lights earthside i forgot who i was and i was like wait why am I crying? It was crazy.
0: <laughs> That's so beautiful. I, love, I mean, I feel like if we had memories intact, most of us I think would resonate with that a lot. If we could remember that moment, Shukadeva, there's this great sage, Shukha. And he, when he was born, actually he had to be born because he had a very special, I guess you could say task. He had to teach this philosophy, you know, this very high Vedanta. And in fact, he is the, the revealer of the Bhagavatam, a great text. And he's revealing it to a king who only has seven days to live. This king is, he's bitten by a snake. It was a curse. And so he's got seven days left. And he he calls this great sage to his court. And he's like, please tell me, how is the best way I can spend these last few days on earth? And Shukadeva reveals one of the most beloved texts of India, the Bhagavatam. Anyway, the story of Shukadeva is that when he was born, he refused to come out of the womb. He just wouldn't do it. He was like, why? I mean, why should I enter into this Maya? I'm a knower of Brahman. I'm absorbed in the... All embracing warmth and light and joy and bliss of pure Brahman nature. Why should I, you know, take on the upadhis of being a human? You know, of taking on a body, a mind, and a separate self. (laughs) No, that's the thing. Then I guess even then, I don't think you could get him out. He just wouldn't come out, and he was just there in the womb. You know, his mother's like, "This is as long as a Monday night lecture. Just get out of there already." (laughs) You know, it's like just like waiting and waiting and waiting. And so they strike up a deal. You know, Shukadeva strikes up a deal with the powers that be. The deal is he will be born on one condition. No maya veils his eyes. That's his condition. Because most of us say we're great illumined sages. If we're born, we'll forget. Maya will come and it will cloud our perception and we'll forget what home was. Though we have some kind of hint of a memory. That's the maddening thing. We kind of know intuitively, intuitively, deep down inside, we know what home is like. That's why when you know, Ram Das said that beautiful thing, we're all just walking each other home. It was so beautiful, right? We all felt that. We we're all like, oh my God, that's what spirituality is. We're all just walking each other home. We just want to go home. The person who like started this stay home yoga, surda, they might say, we just want to go home. <laughs> Make that a t-shirt. We just want to go home. We left home. I don't know why. And, and Vedanta would say, don't ask why. There's no, Maya is beginningless. Ignorance is beginningless. There's no way to say when ignorance began. It just happened. And now, like the Buddha would stress, don't ask that question. Ask another more important question. When will ignorance end? That's what Vedanta is. So you want to take the blinders off. It happened to Sri Ramakrishna, right? Though the veil of Maya was very thin, it was still there. Sri Ramakrishna didn't know he was an avatar. He's literally the embodiment of the highest divinity. He didn't know though. I mean, not according to like Ramakrishna Nanda. There are there are different disciples who had different views, and Ramakrishna Nanda was like Ramakrishna was God. He was always God. He always knew. If if it looked like he didn't know, it was it was only because he was faking it. It was part of his play. Okay, it was all just teaching. There, there are certainly his followers that say that, but I think Swami Sadananda and page after page after page, he goes to great lengths to humanize Sri Ramakrishna, make him a man. You know, really show like the power of the avatar is it's God as a man as a person, as a human being. And that means they're not immune to Maya, even God. When even God incarnates, Maya veils God's eyes. There's all these stories. Remember that story where Indra comes and he thinks he's a pig and he lives his whole life as his pig. And then Shiva has to come and like kill his pig wife and kill his pig child. And like, ultimately then he, through all of his suffering, he finally, I know it's very sad story, but he finally realizes he's not a pig. And he's like, (laughs) like he wakes up and he laughs, right? This whole time he was like a pig. He forgot, he forgot that he was literally Indra, the God. And then Shiva has to like, like to wake him up. Shiva has to kill everything that's dear to him, almost like a Job story. And then finally he's like, through his suffering, he realizes his predicament. He wakes up from being a pig. And he's like, that was funny. Same thing happens to Rama, right? He's like crying at the very end of the Rama, Ramayana. Sita jumps into the ground and she's gone. He's crying. He's like, ah, and then he wakes up and he's like, ha fun. That was an interesting ride. That was an interesting incarnation. God, what did I eat? It must've been that burrito last night. (laughs) They all wake up and like Rumi said, they wake up laughing at what they once thought was their grief. Anyway, if even God has a veil of maya, if even God forgets that they're gone, what more for us? Like we have so much maya, so much maya. So like you said, now you don't even, you have to like a thin veil between you and that. and Like even then it's smoothed over. It's crowded out by this um, maya. So what happened to Shukadeva? She went to Samadhi, she's like frozen. <laughs> oh, there you are. For a moment, you were like totally frozen there. Oh, good night, dear Anna. All right. Good night, everyone. Dudu and Anna, farewell. So, well then, now what? So we would say in Vedanta, Shukadeva came in, no Maya on his eyes. What did that mean? He was perfectly lustless, perfectly greedless, and the perfect embodiment of renunciation. What is Maya? Sri Ramakrishna often says, Maya is lust and greed right? Like maya is like gold, lust and gold, or maya is ego. He says it differently in different places. But if you think I am an I, maya. If you think this is mine, maya. In some places, maya is me and mine. The definition of maya is me and mine. In the Ashtavakra Gita, what it means to be free from maya is nirahankara nama, namama. Be free of I, be free of mine. And then sukhamchara, move about happily. That's what it says. So if you have that memory, it will obviously drive you to spiritual life. So we say, um, once you smell it, once you smell that fragrance of home, run, go for it. You know, like put down the plow. He who looks back cannot progress on this path. Put down the plow, let the dead mourn their dead and follow me. Right? That's what the Christ said. Come. Once you know, come. What else is there? Put down the plow. Let's go. We're going home now. You know, come if you will. The train is leaving the station now. It's your train. Take it. <laughs> Good. Thank you, Jenna, for sharing that beautiful story. You know, Reminding us of Shukadeva. What did they say? Vivekananda, his Maya was so thin, the moment he knew who he was, he would leave. So Sri Ramakrishna had to keep Maya there for him just a little bit so he could stay embodied and do his bodhisattva role. In fact, he would say, wow, how great must all these bodhisattvas be to take incarnation even when they know it means all this suffering. And yet they do it for our sake, to help us out of suffering. That's why in Song of the Sanyasin, uh, Swamiji says, go and help them out of darkness. You know, help them out of darkness.
3: Yes, Amalji. Um, I just wanted to uh it's partly just I can't I, I can't get enough of the Vedanta to Tantra. Um, uh, you know, like they both are just so uh fulfilling, you know. But um I, I kind of have a philosoph it's um like a philosophical uh question about um I feel like I when people brought up the question about, and you answered that um, Tantra is more like, almost describing what it's li- like to uh, what realization is like, rather than like a philosophy. And um, I, I often think, th- think about that, like um, Vedanta is always prescribing discrimination, between the real and the unreal and I wonder if does Tantra what is the means in Tantra that's essentially my my question because yes. I, I feel that um, that uh, Tantra describes like the result of
0: discrimination
3: but I never really get what is the means in mm. Tantra
0: in fact your question is so deep because Tantra is nothing but that I would argue Tantra and not, not I would argue. I've heard it said many, many times, and I tend to agree. It's what I mean. Tantra is an upaya shastra. Upaya means means, shastra means technique. Or so, sorry, science. So tantra is a school of techniques or a science of means. They say tantra is nothing but techniques, nothing but possibility. So if you have so more techniques. Yeah. It's practice. the techniques are the means. Practice, practice, practice. So we've talked about them, right? The four upayas. Right. But you'd say, okay, what are the means in Vedanta? It's very simple. It's manana, shravana, nidya. Sorry, shravana, manana, nidhyasana. That's it, right? Very simple means. You hear the teaching, you think about the teaching, you meditate on the teaching. That's it. The stuff about discernment is actually entry-level Vedanta. So it's like, before you can even start Shravanaying, mananaing, nidhyasanaing, you have to have the sadhana chatustaya, right? Sadhana chatushtaya. what are they? the fourfold qualifications that you need to study Vedanta. If any of you have studied Vedanta and it's not working, you have to go back and ask, do I have the qualifications necessary to study Vedanta? Because there are four of them. The first one is, as you said, discernment between the real and unreal. I have to know that something is real, something transcendent exists. I don't have to know what it is. I just have to intuitively know that there is something. and There's something to what the sages are saying. And that thing is more worthwhile than whatever else it is I'm interested in. That's the first thing, viveka. And thereby I get vairagya. I must have the ability to push away that which is not nourishing and real to me. Then the next thing I need is sampati, the sixfold treasures. The first one is shama, calmness. Uh, dhamma, I need restraint and control. I need titiksha, spiritual forbearance to deal with the various struggles of sadhana. I need uparati, real, like, like, wholesome, wholehearted devotion to it, doing it all the time right? Shankara would say, muhur, muhur, inquire again and again. Then I'm going to need samadhana. I need focus to be able to stay with it long enough for it to become a true, genuine teaching. And more importantly, I need shraddha, faith. Faith in jnana, yeah, faith in jnana. We need to feel like the great masters realized it, I can't do I have faith in the teachings, I have faith in the method. These are what we would say, okay, discern discrimination. Discrimination between the real and the unreal is the entry level to hearing manana, nididhyasana, uh, all that stuff, right? Okay, what do we do in Shaivism? We say there are seven levels of perception that you can have. So here's another discernment teaching. In the Hidaya Hidayasutra, verse three, it says, Tan rupa grahya beda this world is one, it's just Kali, but it appears to be different because there are different ways of looking at it. Starting with the Sakala. The Sakala, meaning with limitation, is a being who considers the world um, of manifoldness to be real. So the Sakala has no discernment whatsoever. They just take what they see as real. They're like all of this, yeah, plurality exists. I am the self. I am separate from. I am this self. I am separate from everyone else. That is a person who lacks any discernment whatsoever. Then the sakala, when they go to sleep every night, they become a pralaya kala. So they have a temporary touch of non-dual awareness, which is deep sleep, but it's not like real. They're gonna wake up and resume their sakala Then, if they practice yoga, they'll become a vijnana kala. Now they know, ah, actually, I am not this person. I am formless awareness but they can go further. They can become a mantra. A mantra is someone like a God, almost like a minor God who, or like a Bodhisattva, who realizes that their awareness and then like Jane was saying, also realizes the capacity for that awareness to have will, to have desire, to act in the world. Then if they go further, they become a Mantreshwara, which is literally God himself. Like Ishwara, you know, you can become Ishwara and you can perceive the world as Ishwara. But that's not even, you can go even higher. You can become Maha uh, mahamantreshwara or mantra-maheshwara, which is Godhead. So now you can become Sadashiva. And then you can go even higher, actually. You can become Paramashiva himself. So you see there are seven, Sakala, Pralayakala, Vijnanakala, uh, Mantra, ma- uh, Mahamantreshwara, um, uh, Paramashiva. And there's the last one is Hridayam, which is actually all of them. This uh, Sri Parameshwara covers all seven. Whereas these are like the six chakras, this seven one pervades them. Anyway, so look, this is the theory that these seven are all different nodes along the spectrum of duality and non-duality. From that or idam, this and aham. And all of these are different permutations of aham, idam. I am this. If you say idam, then you're a sakala. This is real. If you say aham, idam, aham, I am that I am, you're God because you're balancing between the object and the subject. If you can say aham idam with an emphasis on the aham, then you are Godhead. If you can just say aham without idam, then you are like Shiva, like Paramashiva. Shiva. And if you can go even beyond that to where words cannot go, then you can cover all seven. So what is discernment in Shaivism? Just ascending the ladder of objectivity up towards pure subjectivity.
3: So it's um, identical different it's identity yeah um layer i always i'm always trying to translate into, into like okay what did what did what was that what was all of that <laughs> but um and you were saying i am this and i am
0: but um yeah okay think of it as work I, I you know like the statement aham idam there's so many ways to like say that statement say i see a pot right to what degree do you identify with the I? To what degree do you identify with the pot? Let's replace pot with mind. I see a niche. If I affirm niche, I'm a sakala. I'm a bound soul. I'm just like a fucker living in the world, trying to like make, eke out my existence with pleasure, power, wealth, right? So that's a sakala. I'm a, I'm a worldling. If I go C, if I'm more interested in the C, the balance between I and niche, then I'm like a mantra. If I go even higher and just, have this Advaitic realization that I am not Nish, I seeing is I'm I, then I'm basically Shiva, Shiva himself. If I go even higher beyond I, see, and Nish, then, I, then words cannot go there. But the idea is to what, what's my discernment? Am I able to discern between me and Nish? Nish is unreal. Nish is changing. I, the witness of Nish, am real. So like Advaita would say, discern between the real and unreal. Shaivism would say that too. And Shaivism would say there are seven levels of discernment. Notice Shaivism, it seems to be elaborating. It seems to be adding layers, adding nuance. So it's almost like Advaita gives the broad brushstrokes and then Shaivism goes in with some maddeningly intricate details.
3: <laughs> I love that. I just, it's, it's like de- a lot of details where um, I feel it's on, it seems new to me in some ways. I understand what, you, what you're saying. And, uh, but it's true that Vedanta kind of just, is so simple to grasp in some way and then when i hear um like uh shivism and stuff there's a lot of terms that's like you you know i'm still picking them up and things like that but yeah thank you so much um i it's a subject object looking closer into those things that's what i hear from what you're saying
0: yes exactly right
3: thanks for lecture tonight thanks for staying up so late with us
0: Thank you, dear Amal. If as long as I see Amal's face smiling and Deb there, like just in bliss and singing, <laughs> today we have some new friends. You know, Alec, I've seen Alec a couple times before, but hello, Alec. Welcome. It's nice to see you. Hello.
2: Hi. Thank you for I hope having you me. This is, uh, I, I, I'm so happy to be here. And uh, I was uh, introduced uh, to you via Marlene, who I just have to recognize. Uh, she's been a teacher of spirit and journey. For about a, a year and a half and I'm just so so grateful that she's in my life and now that now that you're here and I'm here we're <laughs> <you're Wow>. here
0: <laughs> Marlene is like in the tropical forest right now I don't know how there's wi-fi where Marlene is but she's tuning in from like I don't know the Amazon or something or like the yeah. set of Lord of the Rings what's going on there Marlene
8: <laughs> Lord of the
4: Rings, Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah I know this is Patrick my, my partner's backdrop in his room so I'm like you know what? I'm like be here today last week I was in space so I'll come down to earth for today's <laughs> lecture. <laughs> yeah.
0: I'm glad you got the extra grounding cuz today's lecture was pretty spacey.
4: <laughs> I told I told Alec you chose to come during a heavy ass fucking lecture. <laughs> And, but he loves it. I mean, you know, it was like no coincidence that he would be here um, during this, this lecture today. I, I know he was, he's ready for it. So
0: <laughs> as yeah, we all are, right. We need uh, Divine God. mother guide us. I mean, to see both of you smiling there, I'm like so happy, you know, like I'm so happy <laughs> to see all of you and all of you who are here that I, I feel your presence is so nice. Like, wow, we really could just be intoxicated and do this all night. Right. It's so fun. But I hope you don't mind that we did double feature today. I just, I don't know why. I was just like, there's so much, you know, let's just do, we used to, you know, we had these two hours lectures and I was like, no, from one hour, we slowly went to one and a half and then we slowly went to two. And I was like, no, let's be concise. Let's go back to one. And then slowly went back to one thirty And then, then it became two again. I don't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> Next week, we're going to try. I'm going to, God willing, do my best in one hour and then we'll have Q&A. distilled. Yeah. That, Cause it's more bite-sized, right? It's like, okay, I'll take this and then really go deep in that. And then uh, instead of like digging many holes, right? Shri <laughs> Ramakrishna would say though, I hope that the flow made sense. Like first the Advaitic teaching and then the four techniques. And then finally the, don't worry, go on and play. That was, I felt it wouldn't have done justice to the topic of renunciation to do one, not the other two or to do two and not the final bit for people who feel like why are you shitting on my parade? You know, I want to go and play and you should go and play. that's why. Yes, Dear Ash. Ash um, are
8: since I have you here, I was like, let me just ask some more questions um about Tantra. So I know Tantra is the ways of the, the way of the householder. Because I was reading um Karma Yoga and from Swami Vivekananda. And he was saying, um, if you're doing tantra, like, you know, be a good um like I, I think he talks in like, uh, like a male perspective. So like, be a good son, be a good husband, um, like you know, don't be disobedient to your parents. He like says that kind of stuff. So I was thinking, technically, if you wanna uh, renounce, shouldn't you have no kids at all then? Because then wouldn't you get attached? And if you do do the way the householder, then I feel like isn't it a little bit harder for you to like yeah. renounce everything and then. Um, you know follow that kind of mindset I feel like it's easier to be a, a monk I mean I know Vivekananda he says Swamiji said like oh either or is good like there's benefits to being a monk and then there's also benefits to being a householder but I don't know I feel like if you become a householder wouldn't you get so involved in the world like I gotta take my kid to school gotta pick up groceries for the house gotta clean the house gotta pick up dry clean like you know all that stuff like I have so many chores when am I gonna time for myself like I feel like <laughs> that's why like I'm thinking in the future because I'm like if I, you know, like wanna have kids or someday, then it would be kind of hard if you want to like renounce everything. I'd have to wait until like I'm 80 and like, on my deathbed. Yes. Like, no, that's yeah.
0: the thing. There's a problem with the model of like, okay, I'll spend the first twenty five years of my life. And I will do that as a brahmachari, studying Vedanta, studying Dantral, I'll do that. And then I'll spend the next 25 years of my life as a grahasta, you know, as a householder, doing all those things and enjoying the world. And then I'll take the next 25 years of my life as a vanaprastha. I'll retire to the forest, and then I'll devote all of my time to spiritual life. And then I'll spend the last 25 years of my life in total sannyas, you know, like wandering about the Himalayas, maybe embodying what I've learned. That was the traditional Indian model. It's very logical. It makes a lot of sense, right? Like, Okay. If I don't know what the world is like, I shouldn't renounce it so soon. In fact, I should go and enjoy the world, see what the world can give and compare that with what I learned as a child, as a Brahmachari learning, Brahmacharini learning all this stuff. So now notice by the time you get to Vana you'd be able to weigh your options. You could say, here's the life that I lived as a kind of novice training Brahmacharya. And then here's the life that I've lived as a householder and I've done my duties. By that time, your kids are grown up. They're managing the business. They're running the shop. Um, You've done your duties. Your kids are all grown. And now you and your wife, you and your husband, you and your partner, you can retire to a small cottage in the forest and devote all of your time to spiritual practices. And you would do it with a clear conscience you'd be like, okay, I honored my debt to my ancestors by fathering or mothering one child, at least. I've honored my debt to society by making some money and being a good like taxpayer or building charity homes for beggars and and whatever. So I've done my duties to society, to family, to ancestors. And then in that sense, you have a kind of clear conscience. Like, okay, I did what I think was um, uh, virtuous, right? What was dharmic, what my Vedic injunctions prescribed for me to do. Then Not only that, I learned some valuable lessons about being in the world. I learned to deal with challenges and it made me stronger. Like, yeah, I got to drive my kids. This is anachronistic. (laughs) Yeah, I got to take the bullock cart and drive my kids to, I don't know, their ashrama school or something. (laughs) So probably it was a walk away. But I got to, you know, take my kids here and then I got to do this and I got to do that. And in the course of all of that, I learned true resilience I learned to be strong when like life gives me a few jolts. And so by the time I come to spiritual life, my character is matured and formed, well-formed, you know? So you would argue then that when you come to spiritual life, having achieved some level of triumph in the world, some level of self-esteem and self-confidence, that makes you a much better spiritual aspirant, right? So, yeah.
8: But what about your grandkids? Who's going to watch them?
0: Um, Your kids, right?
8: Yeah, but then they'll be like, where's grandma and grandpa? Be like, oh yeah, they're gone they're in the woods yeah like, that's
0: the idea leave them alone they're in the woods they're practicing Vedanta and you know wait maybe okay maybe you can come visit and learn Vedanta with them but like like they're done okay leave mm-hmm. them alone now it's your problem you don't get to just like offshore your kids to your grandparents and then you go out and party all night no now you as the child of your Vanaprashta parents you have to do the Grihastha shit and they're doing like so notice it's all like it all makes sense because when I'm a Brahmachari my parents are Grihasthas when my parents are Vanaprashtas I'm a Grihastha and my kids are Brahmacharis and then when I'm a Vanaprashta, they're and then they're taking care of my grandkids, poor brahmacharis. So like, it's like a conveyor belt, right? And, you know, here's, here's the beauty of this system because like I was saying, it gives you a sense of I've tasted the world and it ain't no shit. Like, that's the first thing. I, I can't get renunciation until I taste the world and be like, it ain't shit. I don't care, right? I have to taste it first. I have to enjoy it first and then realize its limitations. It would be immature for me to say, oh yeah, I read a book. The world is nothing. It's nothing. Because then later, while I'm meditating, I'll think, is it really nothing? I seem to have all of these urges and I feel like, there must be something out there for me. No, try it first. That's why we say, kahasta period is very important for true Vanaprashta. However, there was a problem with this. Can one realize God in only 25 years or 50 even? Um, and we say maybe, but sometimes it takes a whole lifetime and not even that. It takes several lifetimes of practice. I'm speaking not as an Advaitin. As an Advaitin immediately it can happen to anyone, anytime, anywhere, for any reason. But then we quickly realize as Indian culture, that that's a great system. But there are some people who retain memories, as Jenna was saying, of previous births and have such a strong proclivity for spirituality that they can jump ahead. They, having enjoyed wealth, power, and prestige in previous lives, are able to jump, skip the Grihastha period and go straight to spiritual life, sannyasa, the fourth stage of life early on and get the advantage of not only mastering spirituality, but here's the hack, have some life left over to be a Jivan Mukta to be a fully embodied, fully awakened person. In that first model, even if I attain enlightenment, it'll be very late in my life. I won't have many years left over to enjoy that enlightenment. It's the most wonderful way to be in the world as a free man, as a free woman. There's nothing like it. Everything is fun for you. you know. Even if you have duties, it's fun for you. So like, yeah, the monk path appeals to certain people. And you know, read Swami Ashokananda's um, preliminaries. If you have the calling by all means, by God do it, right? It, of course, it's like, what? There's, to me, it seems like such a great deal. You don't have to deal with rent. You don't have to worry about where your food will come. You'll be fed, you'll be housed, and you'll be given the space to practice spirituality full-time. And not only that, you'll be able to surround yourself with holy company of the highest order, benefiting from like, moment-by-moment instruction from the world's greatest monks. At least that's true of the Ramakrishna order, right? So imagine being in Bellarmat surrounded by like, I don't know, 150 other people who are just like you, devoted to spiritual life, Playful competition with one another to meditate and follow the bells and living with you in Bellarmont and like Francis, no, not Francis Xavier, what is it? Uh, X Professor X, right? Professor Xavier's School for the Gifted, like living with you are all these like master, you know, spiritual practitioners, more masters there per square mile than like the whole range of the Himalayas, and they're all there, and you can benefit from their like guidance day to day. So, I think if spirituality, like really, that's all what you really want in this world, why not? If the calling is there, go for it. And my argument is try it and see if you like it. So you can do it for one year, two year, you can be a brahmacharini for a little bit and you'd benefit from even that. Like you wouldn't have to become a full-on sannyasini or monk or anything. You don't have to go all the way, take 10 years and then become, a. you don't have to, you can just do a little bit, take some time away from the world. What you learn, will be of huge benefit to you when you re-enter the world as a householder. Why would you want to be a householder? For a few reasons. One is if there are still things in the world that you want to enjoy. And it's fine. Like if you still want to enjoy things, certainly go out into the world and enjoy them. And being a householder is a nice, very controlled way of enjoying that, right? So, and then second reason is like some of us, maybe that's just our predisposition. We like companionship. A third reason, I think it's the best reason. If you ask, why am I a householder? Why, why am I a householder and not a monk? That's a really great question. I ask myself that sometimes, but it seems obvious to me that I am to be a householder. It's my karma. The moment I decided to be a monk, I decided to like, like just do you know, practicing my brahmacharya, like doing all of that. I meet someone who is like fully devoted to spiritual life, who is also interested in practicing brahmacharya, who also is interested in doing all the stuff. Um, and then somehow or other, there was a deep intuition in me to just like kind of partner up with this person. And I'm twice as strong for it. You know, I feel that way. So like, then I realized like Hannah and I, I really complement each other in a way that's spiritually beneficial for both of us. And we're able to do this. That's what I realized. I'm like, oh, we can build a temple and host people in this house. And what money I make, I get to use for like the, not the just the worship of God, but in creating spaces for other people to come into this practice. And I was like, oh, the karma of this incarnation is to do that. This niche, this experience is, Um, for that to like share the spirituality, to invite. Sometimes I feel like I'm a halfway house inviting people into monasticism because it's a wonderful pot. And other times I feel like it's like a householder's haven to like, look at what Sri Ramakrishna did. What a great example of a householder living like brother and sister, devoted entirely to spiritual life. There's no greater love than that. It's such an intimacy, right? I'm like, oh, maybe I'm here to learn that. Maybe I did the monk thing and I have very strong past life memories of um, that time of my life. And in a very recent one, I died incredibly lonely and cold in a Himalayan mountain cave. And I think maybe I was like, okay, in in response to that, I'm going to try this. And I don't know. It's wonderful. I love it. And I think it is just as effective as being a monk. You know, there's so many advantages to being a householder. The monk doesn't get to enjoy Whereas there's so many advantages to being a monk that household, so they're like Sri, Sri Ramakrishna stressed over and over. It doesn't matter which one you choose, but your karmas will propel you one way or the other. Then Swami Sarapiranda confuses the matter further, or rather clarifies it further. He gives us a third order. He says to my friend, who is neither. She's not a monk. She doesn't want to be part of the order because not going to lose her independence that way. Neither does she want to get married. She's been celibate her whole life, so it's obviously not a matter of like, oh, I want to have sexual, sensual enjoyment. It's not a matter of I want to mother children. No, she not going to have children. Maybe that'll change. Who knows? She doesn't want at all any male, male female person companionship. She lives exactly like a brahmacharini, right? And she's devoted. All she does is spirituality, but she's going to be a brahmacharini. And I'm like, what? Why does she want to, if, if you're going to do this anyway, if you have no, literally no inclination to go into the world and enjoy the wonderful joys of partnership, then why don't you just, right? And Swami, she asked Swami Sarapiranda this and Swami said, no, there's a third order. And it's this, it's people who don't want children, who maybe themselves don't want partnerships, or if they do enter partnerships, it's like this kind of like spiritual partnership. And maybe they don't want to become monks. So I call it independent monks, freelance monks or something. Cause they're living like monks. They're just not actually officially monks. Someone asked my guru, Can I do that? Can I not take sannyas but still live like monks? And my guru almost laughingly said, do whatever the, I'm paraphrasing, but his vibe was basically, do whatever you want. This is your life. You can do whatever you want. You don't have to fit these models. Swami Sarapiranda, he said further, of course, this third order is so valid. Look at the householders. Look at the monks. Neither are doing very well. Basically, saying like both are really failing to live up to that ideal. They're such lazy monks. Oh my God, they're like hoarders and shit. Like, you go to their rooms, you're like, are you even a monk, bro? And you know, the monks, they hoard in this weird way. They like hoard like letters and like, oh, I'm writing a book. So then they hoard articles. Like, they still have that hoarder instinct. And we have monks that I, I know whose rooms are just full of junk and shit. And you're like, you call yourself a monk. And then there are monks who live double lives, who have taken sannyas, who like, you know, do all that other shit. And maybe it's even worse. Like if you want to be in the world by God, do it. Don't like be a monk and then hide and in the shadows, do this stuff. And similarly, if you're in the world, Swami Ashokananda says, if you could have been a monk, that's wasted spiritual potential. So it's like, I would read Swami Ashokananda's book carefully, uh, preliminaries to spiritual life and see if, you know, renunciation is for you. If it is, I can't see why not. I think it's wonderful. You should do it. And if it's not, who cares? That's just as good a path as anything else. And anything in between works too.
8: Thank you. That that was just my question. So I was very confused because I was like, if you think about it, no kids will be better than kids. But like, you know, there are people who want kids. Like I want kids and then I want to be like attached to them. And then like, what if your partner doesn't want to practice spirituality in the future? Then you have to leave him, you know, in the woods. Yeah. And then do your own way in the woods this whole thing
0: no there are a lot of obstacles in a householder's life it's true a lot of obstacles like um, time is the biggest one as you pointed out um and it's just like you know my guru also himself said to me he was like yeah there's just really no comparison when it comes to spiritual life like if you know if really if really you want nothing else in this life but enlightenment you have to be very honest with yourself you really want just that i can't see why not um you should at least try it for some time Because there's no comparison in that you will never have to worry about rent, you'll never have to worry about food, and you'll have all this time to practice spirituality. However, if you do want kids, then if you don't fulfill that sangskara, sometimes it can come to bite you later if you become a monk and then you really want that. So that might be a problem. And another thing is, you're right, all these obstacles are true. They're certainly there, but they're also, as a tantrika would say, wonderful opportunities. So, oh, okay. So you don't have any time. Good. That means what time you do have, you'll take more seriously. So if you say, oh, I'm a householder. I only get to come to the temples on the weekends. And I've seen this, you know, with my own eyes, I've seen. Householders practice sometimes much harder and much more productively than people who live at the ashram. Because you are like, I live here. It's nothing. I can go anytime. And then they don't go ever. I know so many people who just don't make it to morning meditations, noon meditations, evening meditations. And I see householders who live far away come and do it because they recognize the value of it. It's almost like if you live in a record store versus if you had to like take a train to go to the record store, you're probably more likely to listen to that damn record if you had to work to go and buy it, if there was some like cost to it. And in that case, a householder, I think, gets more mileage per minute in some cases. There's more drive. I really care about spirituality. Another thing is you're it's so much easier to be a karma yogi, right? Like as a householder, not only do you have your job to practice karma yoga, but you can practice the various attitudes of Vaishnava Tantra. If you look at your child, you say, child is God. I'll practice my Vachalya Bhava, the attitude of mother. I'll be the mother to God, who is my child. Then if you have your husband or wife, you could say that is Radha, I'm Krishna, or that's Krishna, I'm Radha. Uh, No, I'm Radha, that's Krishna. That's a better attitude. I can practice my, Madhura Bhava, in my romantic relationship, we can practice Madhura Bhava. Then you could say, oh, well, now I have this job. Let's practice Sakya Bhava, friendship. So all the Bhavas of Vaishnava Tantra become so available to those who already have those relationships in life. So it's so valuable, I would argue, to have a partner. Not only that, it's a more gradual path. You, together with your partner, will overcome lust and greed, together, gradually. And it's not so sudden and so traumatic as that Many monks have castration complexes. Like you, maybe i all will testify, but you go to bed, uh, maybe the first night or two. And many monks have reported to me that as young brahmacharis entering the order, they have these dreams where they're getting castrated because the horrific realization dawns on them that they will never use their male member ever again. Right? Like you, when you become a monk, you're like, oh my God, this will never get any more use. Like, and sometimes when that hits you, you're like, what? so that can be sudden and it can be traumatic but if you're in a partnership you can slowly wean off all of that stuff right so it's up to you gradually wean off the world or suddenly and dramatically wean off the world it doesn't matter you're not attached anyway it's none of it's attached to you anyway absolutely speaking so you're chilling (laughs) i know sorry to put that in your head. yeah so I don't know how can I speak on behalf of the month spot you've talked to monks about it I can of course speak on behalf of the householders' spot I love it it's my favorite thing in the whole world and if it wasn't this I'll be a monk and it'll be just as good that's the thing I know it'll be just as good i would be just as happy a monk as I am a householder but I'm probably happier a householder because it just aligns once someone asked Ramana Maharshi very beautiful question why are you in a cave do I need to do that also to re- realize Brahman and he's like no Absolutely not, right? Absolutely speaking, Brahman is as available to the householder as it is available to the monk. So Ramana says, no, mother, you should remain a housewife and you can just as easily attain Brahma Jnana there. And she, you know, not to be outdone, comes back with a wonderful retort. She says, okay, if that's true, why are you in the cave, <laughs> right? If all you great monks are saying, oh, we householders can do it too. Why aren't you householders? You're obviously a monk, so you're obviously choosing one over the other. So Ramana Maharshi, who himself is a sadhu, a monk, he's asked this: Why are you in a cave? And he says, "Mother." He said "Why are you?" And he said, "Mother, your karma is that, and that's the karma of this body. It matters little." That's a very deep answer. If truly you believe, prakritaiva cha karmani kriyanani sarva sha truly you understand that nature natures, then you must also understand that your past karmas, your impressions will naturally result in whether you become a householder or a sannyasin. The sorting hat will sort you, right? Gryffindor, you know, Slytherin, or whatever. But you remain unattached and unaffected by it all. You are just as happy a householder as you are a monk because what is a monk? The body, the mind. What is a householder? The body and mind. You are neither of those. So, does it really matter? Arguably, no. Arguably, it doesn't matter at all. Not one bit. Maybe while you're trying to attain Brahma maybe it matters. But even then, I don't think so. Beautiful. All right, dear Red. Yes, dear Red.
4: Hey, it's been a very long time. Sorry, I don't have my camera on yet. Welcome back. Uh, So I'm glad that I'm back. It's been a while. Um, It's 8.30 in France right now, so that is my um, dedication of the day. (laughs) So um, I guess for me, the struggle is mostly with the kind of work that I do, um, like working with people's brains, right? And the same thing, like, I find it very interesting that um, you have had this talk about um, addiction in the beginning, because, uh, well, I I work with addiction on almost a daily basis. And I guess the the hard part um, for me is that dichotomy in between what your brain creates and what is spirituality. So knowing that, of course, um, like, I cannot give up spirituality, otherwise you will find me um, in an asylum very soon. <laughs> and I love that sentence that you keep saying, like I keep repeating this to my client, is the same water that the crazy drowns in, the mystic swims in, right? <clears throat> and yet that line is so thin. And for instance, when we're talking, I'm sorry, I'm I'm like very tired. I'm going I'm not gonna use the Sanskrit names, but um I'm talking about like suffering from the material world and that suffering can be um yeah, I'm not annihilated, but like um diminished by, of course, spiritual practice and things like this, I cannot help but to think about how the overstimulation of the material world is basically creating the constant dopamine rush in your brain, right? And when you cut off that dopamine-like stimulation, uh, you do indeed start enjoying more of what is actually around you, the present moment and things like this. So... It's, it becomes very uh, difficult because even for example, if I'm going to talk about master plants, like with spiritual experiences and things like this. So you can be indeed working with ayahuasca, working with mushrooms or whatever plants you want to work with and having like those deep, deep spiritual experiences, same kind of experiences that are related right before death. Right. And again, my Cartesian brain comes and is like, yeah, but that's basically DMT and therefore what is actually fabricated by our brain what is spiritual life and how is this all like combining together knowing that um a lot of the so-called diagnosis of like mental health issues or stuff like this can be pretty much uh knocked off by actual spiritual practice like i recommend this to my clients all the time like rounding things like this but it's that constant, like, fight in between, I'm going to say faith and the very Christian <laughs> term of the sense, yes. right? Like, with no proofs needed or, like, you know it in your heart and all that. And I'm here with the whole biological and, like, hormonal and, um, and yeah, that, that kind of, um, like, it gets very hard to not fall into the yeah but that's your brain fabricating it right? right like that's completely your brain yeah that's a dopamine rush yes that's adhd or that's this or that's that and i'm constantly fighting with this yes. and for me i feel like it's impacting my practice a lot especially lately and yeah it's that constant uh, even for addiction right like we're addicted to this 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 in the material world addiction is basically emotional um compensation so Yes. I was thinking about, um, it was in the beginning of the lecture, you said something about, uh, I'm getting tired. It's 8.30 in the morning, so I have to get get it back. Um, but it was something about, oh, yeah, if you, if you want to basically knock off the addiction, then you can cut off the stimuli. Um, I want to say yes, but no. Because, <laughs> of course, this is like addiction is basically you – trying to soothe yourself and it can indeed completely be uh, knocked off by love or things like this, but it's more so like the mechanisms within your subconscious brain, even when I do past life regressions with clients. Even when I see things or when I keep working and that's specific, like even in spiritual hypnosis, I cannot help myself but still wonder like, are we still fabricating all of this? Because this brain is so complex. Yes. And especially you know when is? we're talking about things like this, like addiction, we have such a dichotomy between like the prefrontal cortex, the amygdala. You know,
0: you and know I'm know here like on? let me stop yeah. here. What's happening? You can't use these two models same time. You're inflating worldviews. You're trying to operate through a materialist reductionist paradigm of brain science and neuroscience. And at the same time, you're trying to operate through a spiritual paradigm. And honestly, they are inverses of one another. Okay. So let me explain this to you. And I I think they go
4: together still. That's the weird part. I feel like they're they're still so
0: connected. Let me show you why. Let me show you why. These are the fundamental premises of, so compare them. Okay. Now, when you say, all right, if you know a near-death experience, look at the language you're using. You're saying it's just DMT, right? Like basically that's DMT. Then you're saying ayahuasca and you're describing a spiritual experience in terms of a rush of dopamine. So you're saying ayahuasca gives me a deep spiritual experience. And in some sense, you can reduce that to a chemical change in the brain. So notice you've reduced a spiritual experience to a chemical change in the brain. You've reduced death to DMT, again, to a chemical change in the brain. Um, And then when you say, oh, addiction is a mechanism you use the word mechanism in the brain. Watch carefully. Your language subscribes entirely to the materialist reductionist paradigm of neuroscience and brain only models, right? So if that's the paradigm, what will happen is all spirituality will be reduced to materialistic processes. That's the conclusion. You're right. You won't have room for any of these as transcendental experiences beyond just chemicals in the brain. And you know, if Sri Ramakrishna today, uh, back then when he was having his experiences, they were very real to him, but he would be talking to like Kali And in front of him he would see Kali and he'd be crying and be reacting with such joy but the people around him they weren't seeing Kali and many of them thought he was straight mad you know and they would say what is he under some substance is he drunk has he taken Siddhi which is marijuana what's going on and I think today if people had met Sri Ramakrishna they would say yes yes I don't deny that you're having this experience but it's because there's a little rush of blood to this part of the brain. or you know, it's it, it, I'm not saying you're not having experience. I'm just saying that it's not real. It's just a function of the brain. If you notice the neuroscience of today would disregard Sri Ramakrishna's transcendental experiences by reducing it to like abnormalities in the brain or whatever. So if you operate under that paradigm, here's what you're saying. Matter and energy are fundamental. Consciousness emerge from processes that are inherently physical right? So you're saying first comes matter and energy. And from this soup of matter and energy, there evolves a body. That body over time evolves this mechanism called a brain. And because of the electro neurosynaptic firings of that brain, there emerges this first person experience called consciousness. And when I toggle around with the brain, that will change my experiences in the mental and psychological realms, right? That's, 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 the world view. that's
4: kind okay. of the fight that i have within myself because i am as you know like i practice and i am deep uh in like i'm never going to give up spirituality but it's a constant like what if right because okay. nice. i cannot help but to have both kind of uh views good, and good. even when i work with clients i'm telling them like it doesn't matter if you don't believe in the spiritual side of it We're just going to like layer it down to the psychological or even to like the more mechanical side of it.
0: Here's the problem, right? Let me help you with this. I know that these two will always have contradictions with one another, right? Here's what I'm going to say. The materialistic model is the fashion of the era. That's what you've been trained, of course. Like if you study any of these models, the only way they can have legitimacy is if they subscribe to the dominant philosophy of our era, which is matter and energy are fundamental and consciousness is an emergent property of matter and energy. Here's the problem. It's called the hard problem of consciousness. And before you subscribe to this worldview, you should carefully study David Chalmers' paper called the hard problem of consciousness. There is no convincing data at all in neuroscience that can show you the link between the brain and consciousness. Although they can show you the corresponding events in the brain, corresponding to certain experiences, they cannot bridge the gap between brain and mind, as a causal relationship. So yes, if you blow out a part of Phineas Gage's brain, his personality is going to change, but notice that doesn't say anything about consciousness. Consciousness is the one who is aware of the personality. So almost all consciousness studies in the West is a study of objects, not subjects, right? That's the first problem. There is no scientific link between the brain and consciousness. At least it has not been shown yet, you know? So. If the entire materialistic paradigm is premised upon the brain creates consciousness, it must first show how, and as far as we know, it hasn't. So that link, the brain-mind link has not been proven yet. So don't be so quick to accept that the mind can be reduced entirely to processes in the brain. Although there's a correlation, don't be so quick to assume a causation there. You know, so if you use reductionist language, like DMT is just, or these experiential experiences might just be, no, actually you can't say that. That's a, it's an error, it's a jump in logic. You can map out the entire brain, but where that mapping falls short is how that first person conscious experience is generated. That's my first response. The second response, this is even deeper. In order to prove that the brain produces consciousness, you must first prove that matter can exist without consciousness. Can you do that? Can you show me matter existing independently and objectively on its own without any consciousness?
4: Well, I'm thinking about matter, like actual matter, like basically planets and the universe and things like that. Exactly that. Like, and the branding question, does a a tree really fall if no one's here to hear it, right? That's
0: exactly right. There's no way. And you say, what would be evidence of an independent universe? Like... That very evidence requires one to whom that evidence is appearing. So there would be no sense in positing the existence of matter and energy independently apart from awareness. That means if you're going to say awareness arises from the brain, that essentially means you have to say matter and energy was there first. You can't say that. Anytime you've ever experienced matter, it's always been within the context of consciousness. So the problem with this materialistic reductionist view is if you want to reduce mind to brain, you better premise that on brain being there first. But the other way is more accurate, actually. You can reduce brain to mind because anytime anyone has ever had a conversation about the brain, it's been in the mind. So you can't say the mind is in the brain. You have no proof for that. But in our own experience, we can say very coherently, the brain is in the mind. All conversations about the brain are in the mind. You know, so I'm not now reducing the mind to the brain. I'm now reducing brain to the mind, flipping the narrative. You see how the spiritual paradigm is consciousness first, matter and energy later, whereas the materialistic paradigm is matter and energy first, consciousness later. And wait, how do we know matter even exists? The more we look at matter, the less of it is there. First, we thought that there were uh, things, like Aristotle thought that there were things. This tree is real. This rock is real. Then, a very clever scientist realized things are made up of smaller things called atoms. Okay, there's still something there. Then an even clever scientist realized most of that is empty space, but don't worry, there's still a nucleus, there's something there. And then an even clever scientist looked and found that the nucleus was also like quarks. and you know. So the more you look at matter, the more it disappears before your very eyes. So not only do you have the hard problem of consciousness, which shows that there is a disjunct between brain and mind, you also have in philosophy, something called the hard problem of matter, which is we don't even know what matter is. So you can't prove matter exists without awareness. You can't even show what matter is. How then can you say the mind can be reduced to the brain? Notice that would be the spiritual point of view. The spiritual point of view is no, there's so much more going on beyond the mechanisms of the brain. What does this mean for us? Does that mean you can't use both? No, no. Halley's comment, you can predict it using Newton, even though Newton is like not true, right? Einsteinian mechanics is the most updated physics. Einstein is true, Newton is not. But that doesn't mean you can't use Newton to like predict Halley's comet. Similarly, you could say, if I tweak the brain, that will change my experience because mind and body, you could say are one. But consciousness is something other than mind and body. Consciousness is the one in whom mind and body is experienced. Right? You see the distinction? Don't conflate consciousness with mind. Yes, there are experiences that the brain can produce in the mind because they're really, at least you could say, invariably um, concomitant. Where there's mind, there's probably brain. And where there's brain, there's probably mind. Sure. But consciousness is a thing apart from both of those two. Why? Because you can be aware of the mind and you can be aware of the body. In fact, without a mind, you could never be aware of the body. You could never have conversations about brains without a mind. And without a consciousness, you could never entertain thoughts about brains in the mind at all. Notice what we've done, Red. We flipped it from saying, okay, body comes first, then comes brain, then comes mind. So all mind can reduce to brain. We're saying, no, consciousness comes first, then comes mind, then comes body. So what you're diagnosing as chemical changes, it's not the cause, it's the effect.
4: (laughs) So, yes. And I'm actually, so I'm like fighting myself on this one constantly, like on a very, very daily basis all the time. Like even when I do like, my own practices i keep like wondering because okay let's talk like for a second about rituals right yeah so rituals are a way to distract the conscious brain in order to be focusing like more subconsciously exactly on what you're doing as we as we know so this again is still like calling to my hypnotherapist's brain and is like the amount of um you know, correlations are, are getting me to not doubt myself because, okay, let's talk about like the DMT. I use that word on purpose. Like I vulgarized it. I went through the experience. It was absolutely breathtaking. I was able to feel the elements, to see energy. It was mind-blowing. I went through an entire ancient healing ritual. It was out of this world, like quite literally. And there is no way for me to actually have invented that because I've never seen that ritual right? Good, ever, like not even once, not even on television, like not not whatsoever. Then again, and this is the part where I'm, it's like I'm fighting myself on this one. Like I am of course not reducing this to this, but it's like my Cartesian brain keeps like bothering me with this one. So then, okay, let's take my experience where I went through that ancient uh, healing ritual that I've never seen before. But how do I know that I've never seen this one before? Because your mind records like three hundred thousand information a day, and your subconscious brain will basically like knock it off if if you give it seven informations a minute, right? So everything that you have like basically, um, you know, stored in the yes, stored. Thank you in the in the in in your backup uh, Mm. brain. I'm gonna call it that.
0: And
4: basically resurface at any moment. And every time you do even like you you use the deep sleep correlation, I'm like, my jaw does this because I'm like, yeah, but I keep thinking about lucid dreaming and I keep thinking about all the mechanisms of dreams and things like this. And that is the reason why it's getting me, like, it's fascinating. And most scientists that I actually know that are really good ones, like the one that works with physiotherapy is basically quantum physics. And he's also a doctor. He is very, very much spiritual. Like I went to actually to a retreat uh, with him to a um, pilgrimage with him and, and everything. Like most scientists that are really good and advanced are also like, um, believers i was looking at i was gonna say croyant in french mm. and i feel like there's a good reason why because if you're a good scientist you would be the most arrogant person in the world to think you know it all and that right. everything could yes. be reduced yes. to what we know because we know nothing basically right. Yes, right? yes 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 but then like let's take that dmt experience so mm. I cannot say like, it wasn't real. I was here, right? Like I was here. I lived it. I even like had the actual secrets of nature, like unfold in front of my eyes. It was a crazy experience. It was wonderful. Then again, I keep thinking about the effects of all those, um, like tiny mechanisms in our brain that are affecting constantly our behaviors, our train of like our, our, um what's the word in English? Yeah, our our train of thoughts. I don't know if that's yeah, the proper expression. Anyway, and how everything can be uh almost like dissected like this. And yes, I'm using those words really on purpose. And it's it's just really hard to yeah, not reduce things like this and mm-hmm. to actually keep um I don't know how to, to say this. But yeah, even okay, let's say past life regressions, right? So I do past life regressions for people and they can see a lot of stuff. Then we cut karma, Lynch, blah, 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 all the things you want. Okay. The way we've been taught this, and I, I think it's a very nice way to just shut up everyone who doesn't want to do this, mm-hmm. um, is basically they've told us like, it doesn't matter if you believe in it, it works, right? So it works, just use it. Like that's a tool. It doesn't matter if you believe it or not, it just works. And it's true. It works. And it kind of allows the person to let go of, you know, something that they weren't allowing themselves to let go of, which again, brings me so many questions, right? Because I work with this like all the time. I've had a, a one of my clients get a Kundalini awakening. And I mean, how do you explain having someone who's like full body shaking as if they were having an epileptic seizure while I'm just doing energy work on them? of course there's something more right like I cannot like deny what's actually in front of me or having things that move in your house or stuff like this right and yet I cannot help but still um, yeah having those not doubts but conflicts of interest between both worlds such as yeah everybody who's almost died has had like that near-death experience seeing this 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 and that again when you look at the Amount of DMT that is released in the brain when you're about to die. When you look at the DMT that is in ayahuasca or any master plants like this, still gets me to not doubt it. But yeah, it's like I feel like it's a never-ending conflict in between Mm. another one. As I've been working with people who have DID, right? So dissociative identity disorder, and I'm kind of wanting to approach this one on, on a more shamanic view. So I'm working a little like pedaling back on this one. And I know like if like please don't quote me on this one, because I would be
0: hanged or burned at stake. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I think this is valuable. Notice you notice you're using the language of Jungian unconscious, right? The idea that, okay, on this DMT experience, how do I know that this isn't just the Unconscious. Notice you didn't use the word subconscious. The Freudian subconscious is personal. It's your own repository of your own complexes. It's your baggage, your backdoor closet so whatever.
4: I think I meant subconscious more in that sense. It's more like speaking in English gets me a
0: little less no. precise I language. The unconscious. When I... Because you're saying yes. there are whole varieties of things, right, that exist in this Jungian un- unconscious, like archetypes. There are yes. all these beings and heroes yes. and heroines, like gods and goddesses. So Jung's idea is that beyond the Freudian idea of like, okay, this is just sexual impulses repressed. It's no, everything that we speak of mythologically exists in this vast transpersonal unconscious. And you could say, well. At any time, when you have a spiritual experience, you're accessing perhaps more of that unconscious. That's the Jungian model. Notice, I don't think it's any less spiritual because it's saying that there is something beyond the individual something transpersonal, something mythical and mystical, and you can access it through certain practices. And in your case, you know, certain other experiences, like they give you access to this realm that's very real. So let's go with this. You had a personal firsthand experience of things that are beyond your understanding and knowing and beyond your conscious memory. Okay, you can't doubt that experience. That's something that you did experience. Next, you've seen with your very own eyes reactions that you don't know how to explain in physical terms. Okay. So put that on one side. On the other side, you have this whole list of concepts and assumptions that you seem to be holding on to very tightly, which is, well, but what about these chemicals? Wait, which is more real now? These concepts that you learned from some person in some book or these personal firsthand experiences that you've indubitably had? Of the two, I think the authority of the former trumps the authority of the latter. Done. No more conflict. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right?
4: Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. And I, and I still agree. It's more like I'm trying to calm those constant, I'm going to say doubts in a way, because it, it is doubts in a way. And at the same time, things happen in sessions that you can't deny, such as like, I'm I'm going to guide a session and people have like three sentences up front. They already know what I'm going to say, even though I barely know what I'm going to say, because sometimes I'm just in it in the moment and the story will build up as it's going, Right and people can see each other. So that's the part that I really like is how I know firsthand that there can be a meeting of the minds that goes into, I don't know. Like you said, you know, your doctor friend,
0: the friend that you went on pilgrimage, like you're saying, what makes him a really great scientist is the humility, the ability to say there's more going on here than is what is, you know how Hamlet, he says, there's more to life than what is spoken of in your philosophy books, Horatio. Right. No, there's more to heaven and earth than what's written in your philosophy books. The idea is like a good scientist, a really good scientist knows about Heisenbergian uncertainty, knows about the quantum like deep issues in quantum mechanics and the uh, Copenhagen inference. They know about um, uh, Godel's incompleteness theorem. They know about Einstein and relativity. So a really good scientist will have this view that so much is going on that I don't understand, And they'll be open to the possibility that these spiritual realities are real and not always mappable by our current models of science. So a good scientist will accept the limitations of the current ways of looking at the world, right? It's the, like I say, non-scientist community, I I call it scientism, the type of religion that's kind of, you know, organized around these materialistic problems. If you show them like a literal 400 page dossier of peer-reviewed Um, corroborated studies in reincarnation with really good evidence for people remembering past lives, they'll just say none of that's real. They won't even bother to look at it. They won't like curiously flip through it. Notice that there's a group of people like Richard Dawkins and all these like militant atheists who are as dogmatically uh, attached to their views as like any other bigot from any other religion would be, right? So that being the case, I think we can all agree that this world is far wonkier and far more complex than anybody can understand. Now, what Advaita Vedanta is saying is this is Maya. Here's what you should understand. This is very important. Maya is inexhaustible. As we're speaking, Red, it's like nine-nine in, in France right now. Can you imagine between the time that we started talking 8:30 to 9, how many new insect species were discovered? Like oh, just-no in- no, I don't want to think about that. <laughs> like, 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 I know, sorry, insects, but fish, maybe. Like people every day. Okay are discovering a whole new like of like suddenly oh my god there's this new species and we classify it like this there are more species appearing and being discovered than there are like taxonomists to record them they're like rushing against the, the so what we're saying is maya this whole world of maya you call it the goddess is inexhaustible in her creation you know she's just every moment new species are coming into being every moment there are spiritual experiences of every sort you can see this and you can see that and literally inexhaustible experiences. She's infinite. Her nature is infinite. So her manifestations are going to be infinite, right? So if you try to understand all of it, if you try to like fit all of it, the infinity of it all into a finite brain, you're going to come up against some problems like you're currently experiencing. You can't do it. The best thing to say is that Maya is inscrutable. Look, the best minds who are studying Maya right now, the greatest scientists of our time have all come to this conclusion. It makes no sense. You know, the laws of causality are wonky. Time doesn't make any sense. B-theory, um, yes. space doesn't make any sense. There's paradoxes all around. I mean, how can it be a particle in a wave? It's, ah, everyone's freaking out because they realize that this world is beyond our understanding. You know, mm-hmm. so then you could say, why do I hold on so tightly to my need or this model of trying to rationally approach and understand all of this? The better thing then, than understanding Maya is, and there's I'm not saying don't be rational, there's purpose to being rational. Mm -hmm. That rationality will show you it's futile to try to understand maya. So what should you understand? The source of maya. And that is Brahman, your consciousness. Then not even your conscious, the conscious that you are. That doesn't change. While maya is full of change, don't be impressed. Don't be uh, distracted. You are unchanging. You are the witness. You were there in dream. You're here in waking. What you experience in this waking world is not any more or less real than what's there in dream, right? And you're talking about like lucid dreaming. So you know well what it is to be in a dream. Right now, you're lucid dreaming at this very moment.
4: Yeah. So when you're saying- I'm pretty convinced of this altogether. That's kind of why I'm having that dichotomy is I know how like everything is so transient. Everything is so um, not- So that's the thing is it's super hard not to get into um, fatalism, right? Like to not go through the other side all completely just saying like, basically nothing matters because everything is fake. Right. And that's not the point of it all. And I know this, but sometimes it's, it's difficult. Like I feel like even having that dream uh, that other dream approach, I'm going to say like this. um, Yeah, it's, it's, Like, I love the mystery of it all. It's just, what is the line? Okay, this would probably be a better question to ask like this. Like, what is the line between what's basic? And I'm going to say basic on purpose, like vulgarizing a little bit, right? Like, what's that basic, like, uh, reaction with, like, um, conscient, inconscient, uh, you know, like, basic, like, dopamine rushes or things like this that we put, like, on, on this side right here? And what's the actual, like, spiritual experiences and things like this because I, I work with spiritual hypnosis every Mondays, right? With the group sessions and stuff. And I know what they see is like we work with archetypes all the time. I'm a big uni- union fan of archetype work uh all the time. Like basically that's my my favorite thing. Yeah. And it works perfectly. It does there is that concept like within everybody's subconscious that is just like, this is this, this is that, like if we use the soldier or if we use a divinity or if we're, and they're basically able to embody it, which makes me think of your, uh, I'm going to say your view of uh, Hinduism more as a, this is part of me instead of, I'm, uh, you know, a I forgot my English word. Um, I am um, honoring an exterior deity is more like honoring a part of yourself and allowing that. I'm going to say full circle, right? But it's more like, what's the thin line, right? Between I completely, like, this is a chemical or basic reaction that your brain just produces or no, that was an actual spiritual experience. That's, That's I feel like.
0: It should be. Um, Okay, so there are a few approaches. So I like what Amal is saying. If you see in the chat, that was my last uh, response was to say, Even if, and we should always have an even if, right? My first response is to say that the models of materialistic reductionism don't work. And and so that was my first response. These are all the problems with materialistic reductionism. Um, And so don't worry, there's no conflict here because material reductionism just doesn't hold up. It's probably more likely that consciousness produces the mind and mind produces the brain. At least that's phenomenologically true that is true to our own experience of the world. And then my second claim was to say, if you ever had to choose between an experience and a concept, experience is obviously a better authority, you know, because that's intimate, it's personal, it's something that you indubitably, indubitably have, but concepts are just handed down to us from like other people who are just, maybe they could be just saying whatever, and we might not even understand if they, we, they mean what we think they mean, okay? So that's what I was, then third response was, let's say, even if, let's say, even if you're right, what if all of this, all these quote-unquote spiritual stuff, what if it was all just neurosynaptic firing, right? Like what if we could reduce everything to just the pattern of like, I don't know, chemicals in the brain? And then as Amal is saying, would that really matter? Because the fact of the matter is I'm experiencing it this way. The explanation as to why I'm experiencing it is secondary to that I'm experiencing it. So once, and I, I expressed this earlier today, that if I I, I was on an atheist um, YouTube interview kind of thing, you know, so they're interviewing me, and then someone in the comments had asked, Nish, what would you do if all of your beliefs were false, if they were like proven false? Mm-hmm. And of course, my first answer is, bro, religion isn't about belief; it's not about faith for me. It's about um, realization. Religion is premised on experience. Mm-hmm. And then I said, I've had enough personal first-hand experience, as indeed you have too, to know that this stuff is real, to know this is the most meaningful way I could be living my life. So I'm going off of experience, just like everyone else. I'm very convinced based on that. But then I thought, let me honor the question. Let me say, what if I was hallucinating all of that? Like all these experiences that I took to be real, like you're saying, what if they're all just reduced to chemicals and they weren't actually really real? Would that change anything? And when I thought about it, I had this beautiful realization that it wouldn't, it really wouldn't change anything. Like, well, if my God is nothing more than chemicals in the brain, that won't stop me from doing puja every day from worshiping and praying because I friggin' love those chemicals. Maybe, right? <laughs> Who knows if it's just chemicals in the brain, then those chemicals to me are way more valuable than whatever other chemicals the world can produce. So orgasm, fine. Those chemicals, eh, not impressed. Um, uh, All the various drug experiences that I've had, eh, all this, but God, whoa. Give me those chemicals. That one Mm. is lastingly fulfilling in a way that nothing else is. Notice, whatever concept I use to dress up and rationalize my experience, I'm still going off of my experience. That's the authority here. Mm. So as Amal is saying, and I tend to agree, what model you use, whether it's Kashmiri Shaivism or Advaita Vedanta or Buddhism or scientific material reductions, whatever model you choose to use is secondary to your actual firsthand immediate experience. That's what matters. However, I'd like to take a different approach with you, which is a more Buddhist approach of like, okay, if you ask Nagarjuna, does the friends ask him, does the Buddha reincarnate? No, something like that. He won't say yes. And by that, you'll, be, you'll think he'll apply no. So you'll, he will just say, he'll be quiet. And you'll say, so the Buddha doesn't reincarnate? He'll say, I didn't say that. And he says, so the Buddha does reincarnate. He goes, I didn't say that either. And then you go, so the Buddha both reincarnates and doesn't reincarnate? And you would say, no, I didn't imply that. And then you'd say, oh, so the Buddha neither reincarnates nor doesn't reincarnate? You see, everything you ask, is it material reductionism or science? Uh, science or spirituality? You'll say, neither, not not neither, not both, not one, not the other. You what? What's the point of that? Why does he use logic to deny all these propositions? It has to be one or the other. Or maybe it's both, or maybe it's neither. These are the only four options, right? If ever you're presented with a dichotomy, it's either yes to this, no to that, or yes to this, no to that, or yes to both, or no to neither. Notice those are the only four options you can have when dealing with like a mind problem like this. The point of that Buddhist text is to show that all four options are wrong because the mind is wrong. The mind will never understand infinity. That's what you're trying to do right now. You're trying to fit the ocean in a teacup. (laughs)
4: <laughs> I love that, but it's more like when I'm faced with certain, like I had a question about, uh, I, I learned this word like a week ago. I never heard this one before, but there's this concept called a walk-in for example. And as I was facing this uh, specific question and people ask me like a bunch of stuff. And sometimes I'm like, I can't answer on a factual thing. Like this is what I know from it. But thinking about it afterwards, I was like, how would that even work? So, you know, there's that like new age concept of twin flames with the soul separating, blah, blah, blah. And the soul walk-in is kind of in the same uh, direction. Um, so apparently it would be a soul that, I'm, I'm laughing, it's not funny, but a soul that basically comes in your body to either inhabit it for a small amount of time or to even just switch. And basically this would be a shift of um, consciousness, probably not the right word to use here but probably still is too i'm not even sure anymore so it's like a switch in between basically what the body's holding at that, at that moment and there's can be like different configurations as in a soul walk-in type situation so i had that question about this uh asked to me like last week and so the person was basically fully aware that something was coming in and basically taking control of her body and that it was going to be either she goes or they're going to be together for a while or you know like there can be many different situations and I was thinking for such a case like this is it to be approached on a more because that's the thing it's like I'm constantly looking for more answers I'm not saying like this is this or this is that it's more like since I want to have all the approaches, like right. some things can be just dealt with on a very materialistic way. Like right. I'll give you mm-hmm. one ruminations and intrusive thoughts. I- I'm gonna say it like this. It goes so much faster to just use like CBT, like cognitive sure, behavioral sure. therapy. It it'll be done in two weeks instead of and no disrespect to meditation, but instead of two years of meditation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like sure. it can be just knocked off your brain like this So on those kind of things i'm like let's just use simple and fast techniques to just alleviate suffering as fast as possible but when i'm facing other more complex uh, identity i'm gonna say more issues such as the id or this one like the soul walk-in is one where i'm like how would that even work on a spiritual level is something that is like For me, I call it a possession, right? Like that's kind of how I reduced it. Um, It's not exactly the same concept as a possession, but this is where I'm like a little, uh, I don't know how to even
0: approach this. Your approach of like, okay, let me just have as many models available to me and I'll use the appropriate ones as the times and moment suggests. That's actually the correct way. We say, you know, there are yeah. six darshanas, six different schools of Indian philosophy, and that doesn't even include tantra. Within tantra, there are so many different modes and approaches. Now, um, the way to properly handle Indian philosophy, as Amal is indicating, is actually to see them as all so many different angles. There are just various ways of looking at something that itself is beyond language, right? So we know Brahman is inexpressible. Reality is inexpressible. It's not our map of it. The map is not the terrain, like we know that, but having many different maps means that we can perhaps approach it from different angles. So you're right. The way that you're doing it is absolutely correct. There's there's a time and place for Newtonian mechanics. That will predict Halley's Comet. And there's a time and place for Einsteinian mechanics for small objects. So like that, that's how we use the mind. We use it, so you're right. And I've often said time and time again, that spirituality is not a fix-all for things that are happening on the level of the body and the mind. So if you're hungry, eat. If you're sleepy, sleep. If the body needs medicine, give it medicine, right? Because ultimately, um, the claim here is that you aren't the body. And that means you don't have the right to deny the body what is natural and fitting for the body. Right. So that, that, that's absolutely right. I love that. Which is, if there's a simple fix, go with it. And often there is. And people are over-diagnosing. They're saying, okay, I need to solve this problem if I do this particular puja to this. But no, just take the whatever medicine that you need to be, like, whatever. So do that on the level of the body and maybe on the level of the mind, that's true also. Personally, I don't have any experience with like, you know, medicalization of certain things. I know that some people, it helps a lot. Other people, it hinders. So there are a lot of people Mm -hmm. that I know who have actually been harmed by the use of medication for mental illnesses, whereas there are a whole group of other people who have been helped. So again, it's like karma, right? Like if for some reason your drugs are good for you, that's karma. And for some reason, if it's harming you, Uh, then when it comes to spiritual solutions, we say, broadly speaking, there are always going to be four solutions. So like you were saying earlier, um, actually the thing about addiction is it's deeper. It's like an emotional need, right? It's in the, the miglada. And if that person has uh, love, if they feel loved, then that will satisfy that desire. They won't need to go and like get it through heroin or whatever, right? Notice that person that you're talking about fits under the category of the bhakti yoga people. So one approach to all like these problems is to say, develop and cultivate love for God. A bhakti yoga, what does that do? It gives you this feeling that you're being loved then God loves you. God takes care of you. um, You belong to the flock of God. And notice that would address that amygdala problem, right? That would say, oh, I'm not loved. And then this would create the sense of being loved and that would deal with the addiction. That's one way in four. So for a lot of people that might work for some people that might not, if they don't have faith, if they can't cultivate that relationship with God, it won't work. Now notice if you tell that person, go and find that love in the world, notice that that love is not lasting. So, okay, they enter a new relationship and now they feel like they're loved. They'll quit heroin for a while. Then that person leaves them, double. It's going
4: be a self-love kind of thing. It, it, like for, for addiction, it's never, because otherwise you, even I'm going to be a little <clears throat> daring on this one, but even um, like, let's say heroin. Okay. I know a lot of people that actually found God and they like cut out drinking, cut out this, cut out that, et cetera, et cetera. But let's say anything kind of comes and shatters their faith, they're going to straight, right, like, go back to those destructive uh, behaviors when it is a self-love issue to solve. Like, it is uh, within of itself. Like, usually it can be, like, inner child problems or things like that. Like, very specifically to addiction, it it will have to be... why is this soothing me? Why am I looking yeah. into this? Like, what what is this creating? Like, what, what is this useful for, right? Exactly. So always it like looking work. even into transient things d- is, is um
0: like, I, I like to say it's like Band-Aid on a completely hemorrhagic. Exactly. Uh, you can't say like to a it. person like that, your problem is you don't feel loved. So go out in the world and look for love. That's not going to work. Or you say, okay, go <laughs> and develop. Yeah, right. Go and develop faith, cultivate faith. And a lot of times, people have this blind belief, right? So bhakti yoga is different, actually. It's like a practice. You do it every day. Um, of like singing songs, reading stories of that deity, doing puja to that deity. And over time, you start to feel like this living presence of the deity that's not subject to change. Like, as you said, those people who maybe found God and relapsed back because that something challenged their faith did not have a very strong faith to begin with. Why? Because that faith, although it was productive for a time, was premised upon, I guess you could say, just random belief, right? It wasn't bolstered by experience and a stable practice, that's one thing. So bhakti yoga will work for certain groups of people, but maybe for some people it won't. For some people, they just don't have that disposition of faith. They can't look to a higher power. And like you said, even if they do, it might not be sustainable. So we say, oh, well, for some other groups of people, there's another solution, which is karma yoga. So for the type that bhakti yoga works, good, the other type of people maybe like selflessly serving others. They have to get up off their seats and be dynamic and go out into the world and use their cognitive function to help and serve and do work, do good projects. So some people are helped that way. And there's a third type of person who's helped with the techniques that we discussed, like meditation, everyday practicing meditation to be able to master your attention so you don't think about those things those are stimuluses right So notice these are archetypes. this is a kind of Indian yogic archetypical thinking there's like the bhakti yogi the one with faith who can derive love from dualistic relationship with God there's the karma yogi who maybe doesn't have that much faith in the beginning but loves humanity and loves to serve and then there's the meditator the mystic who can just sit there and train every day with the mind and everyone has different proclivities what you were saying earlier about uh, cognitive behavioral, you know, programs, like that is Jnana Yoga, essentially. Like, we have this model, I am this self, I am this person. And then Jnana Yoga comes in and says, no, analyze that, you're not. Everything in today's lecture was mm-hmm. cognitive behavioral, like, uh, refiguring, right? It's like saying, oh, well, no, there's a problem with your framework, your behaviors are arising from a misaligned framework. So let's fix that. Mm-hmm. So we give you a new way to think about stuff. Now, that's my favorite. I like that, because I think, when your intellect is purified, and you're, if you really understand what you are, that gets up to me the root of the problem. You know, as you said, self-love, like my problem is that I feel like I am this person, isolated and cut off from everyone else. When I realize that I am not this person, I am not Nish. I don't have any of that baggage, I am pure awareness. And then when I look at you and I say, wait, is that a red? No, beyond this body, beyond this mind, and beyond this personality is awareness the awareness that lights up your experience. And then I think, what's the difference between that awareness and this awareness? And it dawns like sunlight that, no, there's no difference. We're the same, we're the actually same person. And then there comes this wonderful love, you know, this love of like perfect intimacy and brotherhood and family. Like, oh, that love, that self-love came from a cognitive behavioral model from Jnana Yoga. So obviously it's my favorite. Now that's how we would diagnose. You would say, These are the four tools available to us. If someone feels like they're currently being possessed for lack of a better word, then we have to say, okay, let's start with Jnana Yoga. Who are you really? And then in the moment where you're feeling dissociated, like I'm having this really uncomfortable moment, treat it then and there. Say, okay, pause. Right now, are you aware of that feeling or not? And they'll say, yes, I'm aware. If you're aware of that feeling, then you must be something other than it. And they go, oh, Yeah, there's a little space between me and this horrible discomfort that I feel. That will marginally diminish the discomfort. Create that little space, right? And then you say, this too shall pass. Things come and go. What's it to you? You're the awareness. You illumine dream. You illumine waking. And now you're illumining a temporary experience of dissociation, whatever. And then that alone sometimes creates enough relaxation, enough self-acceptance that they maybe can work through it in a more productive way. You know, mm-hmm. so that's one way. And then you could say, oh, maybe that doesn't work. Maybe there's too overwhelming. I can't, in the heat of the moment, I can't find that space between me, the clear awareness and this horrible dissociation. I'm being possessed. Okay. Then you say, all right, all right. Just get up, go out and do something. You know, go and do some work for others. Mm-hmm. And maybe they can, maybe they can say, yeah, okay, I'll go build a roof or something. And some people say, no, I'm crippled by this. I can't even get off on my couch. What am I going to do? Mm-hmm. And then that person, you might say, Surrender to God. Let's take the bhakti approach. Yeah, Right. That's another option. And maybe none of those work. And then you say, look, okay, your problem is that, yeah, I know, Dev. I feel you. This is a good one, huh? Um, yeah, please go to sleep. Go to sleep. Good night, dear Deb red is just waking up no red is a bit oh
4: no i just don't sleep on mondays i literally i changed my schedule so i've been going to your uh monday lectures i changed my schedules i don't have any clients on tuesdays Good. so i can actually stay awake yeah i caved in the past weeks so i was just like <laughs> snoring at 3 a.m after my sessions but this time i was like i don't care
0: i'm up i'm here we're doing it we're doing it yes me too i'm happy but so then the idea is like okay we have this toolbox and typically would say these are the four tools available to us you know raja yoga hey you know if you can't get up and do some work and help others if you can't have faith and surrender in a deity and if you can't intellectually reframe your situation to create peace then at the very least you can every day learn meditation that's something and i think it has you know so much application in the military it helps a lot of people with their PTSD. I was just watching a documentary recently oh, yeah. about like acupuncture and like meditation in lieu of um, opiates and stuff like that. So there are all these people who are swearing by it, who are saying, okay, meditation itself is for them the way that they've dealt with PTSD when a lot of other models haven't worked. So that's what we would say. That's the current like, kind of straight up yeah. diagnosis is like, what if you can do something in another way, do that but bolster it art therapy as
4: well for cptsd and ptsd and the thing is art therapy is a meditative activity as well Mm. so still the same thing absolutely on this one yes
0: yes and there's all these things like mind body stress reduction right like the secular buddhist kind of adaptation of meditation to the therapy world all of that and there are so many you know different approaches that the beauty is it's never one size fits all Like the the benefit of having so many approaches, you just give someone as many tools, but it has to be them who decides to use those tools. That's the ultimate thing. Ultimately, you surrender you yourself as a practitioner, helping others have to, at some point, surrender to God and then say, mother, it's all your play. Somehow or other, you're playing as this individual. I've placed before them every possible tool that they could possibly use. If they don't want to use those tools, what can I do? I surrender to your will. Trust in the karma. They're going through something and it's okay, actually. They'll be fine. You'll be fine. Everything's okay.
4: <laughs> I think it's even harder when you go into like a, a certain level of, um, I'm certain level that sounds so, so potential. <laughs> but when you, um, I'm going to say when it's, you've been in spirituality for a little bit. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this is a little better but um even like keeping a job or something like this like I have struggled to go back to doing some of the things that I love just because sometimes I don't see the point anymore yeah, yeah, yeah. and I see that like not doing them is actually creating like that kind of sadness and like tasteless uh, yeah, life yeah, yeah. but at the same time it feels super hard um to like okay um no disrespect to to my photo shoots but to like take two hours to put on makeup to do a photo shoot it seems like it's not yeah you know like it's 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 gets hard to be in that in between like spirituality and material world at the same time because you kind of have to to
0: like survive basically yeah no you're right those things fall away Sri Ramakrishna he had the most beautiful parable and that was it has to do with the young woman who gets married in rural India so the way this works is that she gets married she goes to live in her father-in-law's house with her new husband. So she's the one that like moves, right? So she goes over. And now the stereotype is that the mother-in-law is like just a and really fierce and gives her all this work to do. Takes advantage of the new daughter-in-law and forces she's, like, all the housework she has to do it. You know, so she's at the beginning, so busy. She has so many duties to wash the dishes, take the dog, all that stuff. Then she becomes pregnant. And at that point, the mother actually lessens her load mother says, okay, she's pregnant. You know, the more pregnant she gets, the less work she'll have to do because the less able she is to do work. And finally, there comes a time when she gives birth and then she's relieved of all household duties. Her only duty at that point is to play with the child. And it's wonderful. She loves it. The child loves it. It's wonderful. So that's a metaphor for us in spiritual life. When we start, um, we have a lot of work in the world. We have to do this. We have to do that. As we progress, you're right. It will fall away of its own accord. You'll just have less interest in it. And your needs will be less too. You'll say, okay, I had to do this much work to make this much money because I had these many needs. But now as I progress in spiritual life, if my needs are decreasing, so too is my need for a certain level of income, so too will my work decrease. That's the beauty of it. The more you practice spirituality, the more content you will be with less, generally speaking. And the more content you are with less, the less you'll need to work you know so your work becomes I feel like the
4: hard part in this one is depending on what your project is for example like i would want to open like uh more like a retreat center and things like this and those uh, do require that stupid worldly thing we call money right like that's what i'm saying things were more, this is the part where i feel like it's it's super hard to yeah. like even create change or even like create your project is you will have to be enslaved by a certain system for x x
0: amount of time if you want the, to do this thing if you have this ambition to like build this this project the degree to which you invest in that is the great like you you're right you're in your own prison like you will only have to work in so far as you have these ambitions the moment you let them go if you say, yeah who cares let someone else build a studio i'm chilling i don't want that anymore when will you be able to say that and, and you can't say that like, we all should not suddenly say, yeah, fuck all our projects. No, that would be bad. You will be able to say that when they fall away from you. That's what I'm saying. When she becomes pregnant, the woman in that little house, like as she continues to become pregnant, the work gradually falls away from her. So some person might want like a Maserati, like I'm going to, I have to work all these hours because I want a Maserati. It's my status symbol. And then other person might say, I need this kind of house. Now notice they're only a slave to their work because they're a slave to their need for that house. Right. Now you maybe evolve past that and you say, now I have maybe subtler needs. Like I want to start a spiritual community and I want to serve my community by having the space where they get all of that, but it's still in some level an ambition. There's still something in you that says, I want to be the kind of person who does that. I don't know. Maybe, right. There's like this idea that this would be valuable to do in the world. Well, for whatever for me, reason, for me, it's I just...
4: more the fact that, like in my family, people have always been working, fighting against poverty, fighting for you know kind of a saner world. Unfortunately, right. I'm going to say it like this, and it's been very natural to be at the service of others. And unfortunately, being at the service of others when you yourself have nothing to give, I'm vulgarizing to just make shortcuts here. Is not really possible. Like, how am I going to help the homeless in my street if I myself am homeless, right? Like, that's basically it. So I will love to give him my wisdom, but that's not going to feed him at the end of the day, right? And it's more in that kind of
0: sense is like, we kind of need those parts, unfortunately, today. You only need them if you think you do. So insofar as you think, okay, I have to help the world. I have to do my part to alleviate poverty, to alleviate ignorance. If I have work in the world to do, the more you think that, of course, you're right. You'll have to work. And that's why Sri Ramakrishna says karma yoga is like a hospital. Like if you feel the need to purify yourself through selfless service, um, good, do it. And when you're cured, you won't need it anymore. Meaning you kind of transcend karma yoga. You'll feel like, you know what? I'll do what I can, but ultimately I'm no longer attached to this, this idea that I'll have to help the world. Like, okay, my family did it, now I have to do it. Notice.